that when the fog returns to Antonio Bay, the men at the bottom of the sea, out in the water by Spivey Point, will rise up and search for the campfire that led them to their dark and icy death. the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscom, and joining me as always is... Hey, it's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on Twitter and Letterboxd. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all the major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinemadness movie possible. All right, Jim, what are we talking about today? Well, you know, with the amount of smoke in the air, you would think we're talking about 420 again. But instead, today is 421, or nationally known as not really a holiday, but it's a significant date in genre films, specifically a movie that came out in 1980, and it's John Carpenter's The Fog. Every year... I always forget that 421 is the fog day. It's the day that, you know, it's in 1980 when the fog happens. That's the centennial when Antonio Bay gets invaded by a bunch of ghosts who are seeking revenge because they were murdered by the town founders. And I've seen it pick up online over the years, and it's like, I should do something about this one of these years. I always, like, you know, think about, I should screen the fog, I should do this, I should do that, and, you know... As we sat around trying to, like, you know, pitching ideas on what we could talk about, I was like, why don't we just do a episode on The Fog? Now, typically, we've always do multiple movies and kind of, like, don't go super in-depth, just kind of throw some facts, some commentary, a lot of sidetracking, you know. There'll probably be still some of that. But today, we're just going to focus on one movie, which is The Fog. And... Nick, you hadn't watched this movie in, like, what, 20 years? And you just recently watched it because we were recording for this podcast, right? Yeah, I think the last time I saw this was in high school, just on a VHS that I probably rented from the store down the street. And, uh, you know, I, at the time, I, I maybe even kind of thought it was a little boring. But it was it was grainy. It was, you know, which is, is cool sometimes. But I I watched it this morning, actually, and... Uh, yeah, it's quite a different movie that I remember from 20 years ago. You know, I kind of had the same reaction when I first saw The Fog. And I saw it, I'd already seen Halloween, I already saw The Thing. I might have already seen Escape from New York, but I memory's a little hazy at this point. Because I was about maybe 
16, 17 when I finally saw The Fog. And I remember watching it and just being like, huh, okay, that's fine. You know, I wasn't blown away, wasn't enamored, didn't think it was the greatest thing I ever saw. But over the years, this movie has really, really grown on me. So much so that I feel confident and comfortable saying that The Fog is my favorite John Carpenter movie. Wow, okay. I mean, if I have a fog tattoo, and even when I got a fog tattoo, I just like, man, I like the fog. It's pretty cool. I liked some of the imagery in it, but like, you know, it's something about this movie that's just kind of really, really grown on me. And I think a lot of the things you say kind of come into play as to why I had the reaction, because I saw it on VHS just like you, and it's probably panned and scanned, so you lose that beautiful scope cinematography by Dean Cundy, which we'll be talking more about in this episode. And it didn't click. And I remember when MGM put it out on DVD and like, I kind of miss those days when MGM did their own DVDs because they did really, really cheap DVDs. It was like $9.99 or $7.99 for a DVD. So I grabbed the Fog Special Edition. And that's kind of when my appreciation for it started to grow. There was a really good commentary with um, producer Deborah Hill and John Carpenter on it, some making of stuff. And again, just over the years, this has been the movie I've revisited the most out of Carpenter's filmography. And that's, I'm even saying more so than Halloween, which I still kind of 50-50 if I'm watching Halloween around Halloween season. But I, I can safely say that I watch The Fog at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. It's kind of become a comfort movie. There's certain movies that I'll put on late at night, not because I'm so familiar and so comfortable with them. Like, The Fog is definitely one of them, so is Carpool Souls, which, you know, if you think about it, they're probably two weird fucking movies to be going to sleep to, and I'm surprised I don't have nightmares, but uh, it, it's just something about it. And, like, you know, I didn't rewatch it this morning, but I rewatched it a couple of days ago as we were prepping for it, and it's just like, it, it still gets me. It's just, it's, I don't know. Well, We'll unravel why it works so well and why it probably didn't work so well for you and I when we were, you know, about 20 years younger, I'd say. So before we get into more of like, you know, personal feelings on The Fog, I guess we should talk about a little bit of the background about The Fog and how The Fog came about. You know, it came out in 1980. It was written by John Carpenter, Deborah Hill directed by John Carpenter, produced by Deborah Hill. It was edited and production designed by Tommy Lee Wallace, who went on to direct Halloween 3, and also longtime friend of John Carpenter's. I think they grew up together in Kentucky, wherever they were from. And Tommy Lee Wallace was also the editor and production designer on Halloween, and I'm pretty sure he worked, I forget what his job was on Assault and Precinct 13, but he worked on that too. Cinematography, already mentioned, was by Dean Cundy, who started his working relationship with John Carpenter on Halloween. There's some special effects by Rob Bottin, who went on to work with Carpenter for probably his most popular movie now outside Halloween, The Thing. And the music was by John Carpenter. It was released by Avco Embassy, which used to be one of the great mini-major like distributors that like put out a lot of genre fare, which we'll talk a little bit more about about that as we're going along. The film stars Hal Halbrook, Adrienne Barbeau, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tom Atkins, Janet Lee, Nancy Loomis, Charles Cyphers, John F. Goff, Buck Flower, and John Houseman. And if you're still listening to this and haven't watched The Fog yet, I'm just going to give you a one-sentence description of what the movie's about. An unearthly fog rolls into a small coastal town exactly 100 years after a ship mysteriously sinks in the water. Pretty simple. And I guess that was the, the premise, which kind of leads into, so how did the fog come about? 
Well, after the success of Halloween, Carpenter and Hill signed a two-picture deal with Avco Embassy Pictures, which was starting to really kind of get some notoriety, especially in genre fair, because they had a huge hit the year before with Don Coscarelli's Phantasm. They were looking for more horror content, and since Halloween was this huge, phenomenal hit, you know, Avco came to them. And unfortunately, this was a bit of a surprise for the producers of Halloween, who wanted Carpenter and Hill to work on the sequel, which they did. They wrote and produced, but that Carpenter didn't direct. And they also wrote, and, or at least Carpenter wrote or co-wrote Halloween 3 while Hill produced. But they were using their Halloween clout, more or less, to, like, move on and get advance their career as well, as opposed to being pigeonholed as, like, the people that made you Halloween. Which kind of leads into, you know, why this movie is vastly different than Halloween. When's the last time you saw Halloween, Nick? Probably a year ago. That's about when I saw it, too. And, you know, Halloween's a phenomenal example. Like, you know, it's a beloved horror classic, obviously, but, like, it's also like what you can do on little money to make a really, really terrific and effective horror movie. And a lot of those skills went into the fog, but as we talk more about the fog, we'll probably come back to Halloween and kind of relate to it, how they did things a little different or vastly different or did things kind of the same. One last thing before we move on to more of how the fog came about, I just want to kind of give a shout out to Apco Embassy, which, you know, don't exist anymore. I think most of their library has been divided up to um, a couple of different distributors, like for home video and theatrical. But they also released Joe Dante's The Howling, Gary Sherman's Dead and Buried, as well as Vice Squad, and Carpenter Hill's follow-up, The Fog, Escape from New York. So Avco Embassy was just on fire in the late 70s, early 80s with like genre films. They were putting out some fucking bangers for sure. But what kind of led to The Fog happening is when... John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were out promoting Assault and Precinct 13, which was Carpenter's second film and the first one he worked with Deborah Hill on. They were in the UK promoting the film, and they took a trip to Stonehenge. And while they were at Stonehenge, this fog bank kind of rolled in, and Carpenter said to Hill, "It's like, what if there was something in the fog? So that was where the seeds were planted into it. And also... Carpenter and Hill talked about they just wanted to do an old-fashioned ghost story. They're like, no one's doing ghost stories at the moment or right now. We kind of want to do a throwback and do something like that, you know, was terrifying for us and when we saw movies when we, they were younger and stuff like that. And the other contributing factor to the story of The Fog was Carpenter said he was inspired by a film called The Crawling Eye, which is really interesting, except there's no crawling eye in The Fog. There's a giant crawling eye in The Crawling Eye. I, I think you would be disappointed if there wasn't. And a real-life incident that happened in Goleta, California, which is very, very similar to what happened in The Fog, minus the ghost coming back and killing people. The film was primarily shot in Point Reyes, California, which is up the coast, northern California. Very scenic, very beautiful. I mean, if you've seen The Fog, you've seen tons of amazing-looking shots of, like, the locale. The church was in Sierra Madre, where um, Hal Halbrook's um, Father Malone is at, and the interiors were basically shot kind of down the street at Rally Studios off of, I think, Melrose and Van Ness. And at the time, this was Carpenter's biggest budgeted movie, because Halloween was 300000 and this was 
it was I think it was nine hundred thousand, and then it went up to one point one million, which we'll get into why in just a second. So the original cut of the fog was eighty minutes, and according to Carpenter, it just didn't work. Like the music didn't work, the scares didn't work. Plus, I think Deborah Hill mentioned on one of the commentaries that like David Cronenberg's scanners had just come out, and the movie you know doesn't quite kick off. But it does start with a fucking exploding head. And you also got to think Friday 13th was coming out. Movies were getting really, really gory at the time. So they kind of reevaluate doing like a straight up old, old fashioned ghost story and just punched up the scares, punched up the gore. Not as heavy as a lot of those other movies, but just enough to kind of be in the same ball game. We kind of already talked about our impressions a little bit, but like, you know, what's some other takeaways you had from rewatching it after like 20 years? Well, I had kind of, rem- I had misremembered it as, as them being more like it being played up that they were like more like pirates or something. Yeah. I, I don't know why I've thought that, but that's, that's really not the case. No, they're, they're actually lepers. But I, I think the, the whole pirate ghost motif, because, like, I'll be honest, like, there's times that I forget and think they're pirate ghosts when, like, clearly it's just, like, some lepers that are like, look, we just want to do our colony. We want, we don't want to bother anyone. Just let us have our leprosy in peace. Is it, like, you kind of see the boat at the end, and the boat kind of looks piratey, but they never have, like, parrots on their shoulders. No. <laughs> you know, no pirate hats. No, I, I think the other thing is, like, you do see some shots of, like, a ghost ship. And, I, you know, it kind of reminds me a little bit. And I think we talked about it on one of the Halloween episodes. I think the the TV terror one where we talk about Garfield's Halloween adventure and how much, like, it's kind of similar to The Fog in a little ways. I don't know why I confuse the two because one's an animated cartoon with Garfield and the other is a John Carpenter movie. But I, I think that's because they have kind of similar themes and it involves like stolen gold kind of probably does that. I mean, I, I guess that kind of leans into why you and probably a lot of other people think they're just pirate ghosts when really they're just innocent lepers just and trying to. So I misremember the, the entire plot of the movie thinking it's a ghost pirate movie and just thinking that that sounds fucking lame, <laughs> but it turns out it's not lame at all. No, it's, I mean, I'm not big on pirates. So we'll add this to the list of things Jim isn't big on, like in movies. Pirates, science fiction. <laughs> I'm with you on the, the pirates, goonies. but... <laughs> goonies. <laughs> goonies. They're not pirates, so it makes it okay. The, the other things I can take away from this movie, and this is even re-watching it just a couple days ago, the cast is absolutely fantastic. Like, spot-on perfect casting, down to, like, even the people that have, like, a line of dialogue, even the extras, like it just looks perfect. And again, we already kind of gave props, but we're going to give more props here. Dean Cundy's cinematography, like Dean shooting cinemascope, you know, that wide, 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 wide screen, like just kind of gives like extra, like, I, I mean, I know why Carpenter likes shooting scope was because like it gave it gives the movie more of a production value because when you think of scope movies you have like Lawrence Arabia and shit like that and when you shoot a horror movie scope it kind of like it gives it that elevated feel in a way even though it's not necessarily true because like aspect ratios are just like 
it's artistic choice, but like that was his artistic choice. And I think that's why a lot of um, Carpenter's movies kind of stand out because like scope photography and, you know, the majority of like his well-beloved movies were lensed by Dean Cundey. But, you know, we already kind of talked about it. It's like when I first saw The Fog, you know, watching on VHS, you don't get that cinematography. You get kind of like a a shit quality pan and scan movie, which doesn't kind of work because you're like missing information. I, you know, that kind of reminds me as we go on to side tirade number one here is like the, the justice league movie that just came out, the Snyder cut that everyone's like was crying to get. And then Warner brothers finally gave them. I noticed that Zack Snyder changed the aspect ratio to four by three in the movie. I had, I had heard that, but I'm not, I'm not, aware of most of I, I know that it was a thing that people were asking for or whatever release the Snyder cut but like I'm not no well the only reason the only reason I'm bringing it up is aspect ratio because like for years like if I don't know if you ever watched TCM Turner Classic Movies a lot they used to have this like little commercial block where like they had different filmmaker explain what widescreen was what the black bars at the top and bottom of your screen screen meant you know and when Zack Snyder did this whole four by three aspect ratio, people were like, what the hell, man? You know, it's like they got mad because there's black bars on the sides of their TVs because it's pillar box instead of letterbox and stuff like that. It's kind of interesting because it opened up the whole aspect ratio debate, which I thought went away once DVD came out because like, you know, pan and scan kind of went away with DV- DVDs and blu-rays and stuff and especially when tvs started becoming rectangular as opposed to square you know you start losing the black bars because your tv could accurately show the aspect ratio you know what i mean yeah so what so why would he do something like that is that purely a stylistic choice or it was a stylistic choice and like you know i haven't seen the movie i don't really care i don't have a dog in this particular race or horse or whatever animal you want to put in there. I just thought it was interesting. He brought it up and it opened up this huge film Twitter debate over aspect ratio. And it just kind of reminded me, it's like, man, I remember watching movies that were pan and scan like scope movies are the worst because you, in order to like get to information that's in the frame, sometimes they do digital zooms and like horrible shit that just like it, it ruins the movie, but like that just reopened it. So that's the end of sidetrack number one. Right on. I'm sure there's more, but <laughs> it, it's just an interesting thing that I just thought about because like, you know, it aspect ratios don't really come up. They come up at the theater sometimes because occasionally we get films where like, well, this filmmaker actually likes one six, six, but like this movie is like, you know, normally presented one eight five. Like I'm talking about film prints and stuff like that. That's the only time that really ever comes up. But like, it, it was just weird to see a big discussion about it, but moving on. So, I think a lot of those things had to do with like my opinion, thinking the movie was just okay for years. And I actually held this opinion pretty actively. It's like, yeah, it's okay. When it was announced that there was a remake of the fog and you know, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill were involved and I'm using quotes around involved. I think they just like lent their names to it and took a paycheck, which is fine. They're entitled to get some cash. And I was like, you know what? The fog's got, room for improvement i think they could like do something really unique with it jesus fucking christ was i fucking wrong hot off the heels of smallville oh 
Jesus. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it was the it was the dude from Smallville, right? Yeah, the uh, you know the guy that played Clark Kent. Holy fuck, man! I mean, I never seen Smallville. I mean, that guy's fine. And I mean, I've only seen this movie once, but like Jesus Christ, like I think the only movie I was ever angrier walking out of, and I and by walking I'm at at the end of the movie, not walking out of a movie. I'll I'll sit through some shit just because. I think this I think Tex, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake was the only other time I got was so really fucking mad at a remake. Cause like I, I guess I went in think having higher expectations and it just like no. This this movie was just trash. It was directed by Rupert Wainwright, who I guess got his start directing music videos. He did them for um, MC Hammer and NWA, and probably his most famous video is Straight Out Compton, or maybe it's one of the Hammer videos. I guess I don't know. Where do you rank NWA or MC Hammer higher? Oh, of course we're going to NWA, but pumps in a bump. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Please, Hammer, don't hurt him. Fucking pumps in a bump. I. I I remember explaining to my wife about that song. She's like, that shit's not real. And then I played that, and I was like, have you ever heard the, the gangster rap era of Vanilla Ice? So I had to play Roll, roll Up the Hootie Mac. Uh, I only I I only vaguely remember that. Maybe you showed me Roll Up the Hootie Mac. I, I probably did. But I also remember Pumps and a Bump had two music videos. I just the remember the, pool, one, the poolside. Uh, yeah. The poolside one where it was alleged that MC Hammer had a heart on the whole video. <laughs> and that's why they pulled it and reshot it. They reshoot it and it's in a church. <laughs> I mean, it, it's weird to think that both Hammer and Vanilla Ice had their gangster errors. Yeah, but getting back to Rupert Wainwright. Um, besides doing music videos, he also directed Stigmata. I think it's the only other feature film he made outside of the Falk remake. Stigmata's okay. I think it's fine, but like it, I mean, it's infinitely better than the fog. I mean, the me spilling tea and having to clean it up off the floor is infinitely better than the fog remake, you know? Uh, yeah, it, that was the only time I saw it. I know I wasn't the demograph for it, which was, I think they were marketing it towards like a teen horror movie because it was PG 13 rated. And even so, regardless of what age group you're making a movie for, it's still gotta be fucking good. Like, teenagers like good movies. Kids like good movies. So why make a piece of shit? Like, you know, it's... I don't know, man. It's terrible. Terrible, terrible. Have you ever actually seen the Fog remake? I ha- I have not, no. I, I avoided that. Like, it, it still makes me angry when I saw it back in 2005. Because it... But seeing that remake made me also appreciate the original a whole lot more. And I think that's, you know, it's like, that's when my Fog's okay, you know, it's fine or whatever. So it changed to like, you know what? Fog's better than okay. It's actually pretty good. And, you know, over the years it's kind of evolved. One last thing about Rupert Wainwright before I forget. So I this has probably been like maybe five, ten years at this point. Who knows? For some reason, my wife and I were watching Bravo, and Millionaire Matchmaker came up, or one of those shows like that, and he was on there. I don't know if you know what the premise of this is. Well, or anyone knows what the premise is. I don't even know if they still have shows like this. Basically, there's like a matchmaker who finds wives for millionaires. 
And he was on there, and like his promo video was just cringe. He's like, yo, I've directed music videos for NWA. My last two movies were number one at the box office, Stigmata and The Fog. And to his credit, they were both number one movies at the box office. Fog's reign was very short-lived, but I don't know. And I don't know. It, it was just like this weird, awkward thing that like kind of like reinforced my dislike of the fog. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> it's like the the pre the premise is that like I don't understand these shows. I don't even think they exist anymore because like they're just kind of like problematic trash really. It's like you're a millionaire that's paying someone to find you a wife. Who wants to marry a millionaire? Who wants to marry a millionaire? Who wants to marry an insufferable asshole that has tons of money, whose personality gets in the way of them actually having real human connection with people? I mean, that's the premise I took away from the show. I don't know. If you're a millionaire and you met your wife on Millionaire Matchmaker or one of those shows, let us know if that, you know, it worked out. I don't know. We're going to take a quick break here, but when we return, we're going to talk about The Fog, obviously the OG one here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. It is night. It is cold. It is coming. For all those who can hear my voice, look into the darkness across the water. Look for the fog. John Carpenter's The Fog. What in the living hell is out there? John Carpenter's The Fog, coming soon from Avco Embassy Pictures. Welcome back. We're talking about John Carpenter's The Fog on Fog Day here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. All right, so this one starts off with a uh, Edgar Allan Poe quote from his poem, A Dream Within a Dream. And it says, is all that we see or seem but a dream within a dream. It's a, it's a really nice needle drop. Because, you know, a lot of filmmakers put, like, Poe or Lovecraft or different, like, literary quotes in there. I think Deborah Hill was the one who suggested to put that in. And it's, like, it's a nice little line that, like, it's very subtle, but I think it sets up the movie really well. What do you think about that? Yeah, kicking it off with this poem, it kind of gives it an air of mystery and and dread, uh, but, like, not overselling. Like, you know, this this isn't some crazy gory horror movie. Yeah. I mean, even though they famously, and we'll talk about as we go reshot a bunch of like the scares and gore scenes in it, like it's still pretty restrained, especially with what was coming out in 1980. And it also, it's just the Poe quote, just like it takes it back to like that old, you know, that old fashioned ghost story thing that like Hill and Carpenter spoke a lot about with trying to do with this movie. And, you know, right after you get that quote and a little bit of that um, Carpenter music underneath that's kind of, like, subtle but still eerie, the first thing you see is, like, extreme close-up of a pocket watch, just, like, right in frame. I think it might even be, like, a split diopter shot, like, you know, the things that Brian De Palma loves to do. It's, like, really, really cool because, like, all you see is this watch and you see time ticking and then, like, 
camera kind of just pans over and you see like the kids hanging out and then clock is shut and then John Houseman's Mr. Matchin starts telling a ghost story which essentially sets up the film. It's more or less just a, a very effective way of doing a exposition dump. It's laying out like, you know, the mythology, the importance of what what this day is going to bring, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it's told as a ghost story, so it's like you kind of you, coming into it cold, you don't really know if this is true or if this is like a real setup or if it's just like a variation of a theme. Because like, you know, ghost stories change depending on who's telling them, you know what I mean? In a way, the, the Houseman's like whole like monologue that he's doing reminds me of like Robert Shaw's big like monologue from the about the U.S. Indianapolis and Jaws where, you know, he's talking about like when they're going to drop the nuclear bomb and then like the ship is sunk and they're getting eaten by sharks and stuff like that. Obviously this isn't as gruesome or based on reality. I guess it's sort of based on reality since there was a ghost uh, ship crash that Carpenter was pulling for from for inspiration. But like, it's kind of along those same lines. It's like, it's this, it's a dramatic reading. And, you know, I think if you had the wrong actor doing it, it would have fucking sucked. But John Houseman's just got, like, there's that grandfather aspect to it, and there's just this, you know, unsettling eeriness to it. It's, you know, it's really, really one well done. And funny enough, Houseman was actually in another ghost movie, which is, you know, for ghost movies not really being in vogue, the two came out in 1980. The other one was Ghost Story, which had Houseman, Fred Astaire, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., and Melvin Douglas. I think we might have mentioned it when we had um, Stacy and um, Heidi from Ethereal on, because they were talking about the scene where the dude's falling from the sky and you can see his dick. I mean, it's not it's not a big part of the movie, but like, there's just like a full blown. I, I think we've talked a lot about dicks in this episode already. What have we? I don't know. Oh no, no, I'm thinking about something else before before. <laughs> never mind. Yeah, before, <laughs> before we start recording, we were talking about the urban legend, maybe true like thing about at the end of Teen Wolf where like the extra allegedly pulls out his dick. All right. So the Teen, teen Wolf, MC Hammer, Ghost Story, lots of dicks. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, I guess it's lots of dicks. Like, I mean, the Teen Wolf thing wasn't wasn't on, on here. This is what happens when you don't roll the whole time and then you start bringing up other shit <laughs> and then you do a callback to it and then you have to go back and fucking explain it. Do you think the fog would have been proved if there were dicks in it? Pirate dicks. Pirate dicks, leopard dicks, I don't know. <laughs> All right, we're just going to move on from there because I can see nothing but bad coming out of this from here on out if we continue down to down with this dictation here. The story that Houseman's telling is just, just sets up the legend. You know, you have the ship being sunk, the treasure being stolen, and, you know, related that, like, the curse would come to reality a hundred years later. And incidentally enough, the town they're in, Antonio Bay, hitting that centennial right at the strike of midnight, which kind of leads into all the weird shit that starts to happen. We're going to do this pan up to like that eerie like beach through the trees where you get the fog title, which is, you know, again, this is just setting the tone. And you get a little bit more of that Carpenter score underneath. Like it, it takes you to a place. It, it kind of like it. Although it's not saying the Poe quote, it kind of, like, brings it together. 
if that makes sense. I think just when when I watched this again today, this morning, (laughs) it just solidified even more just to me how much just John Carpenter was like his own thing. I mean, I know everybody loves John Carpenter, but like really, I mean, he had like the, there's just a through line there that he was just doing something different than everyone else. And, and with this rewatch, like I can feel it. It's just like, this is so Carpenter. Yeah. I mean, the thing is like, this was only his fourth film at this point. And, you know, He's, he did Dark Star, which started out as a USC like thesis film that got released as a feature. He did a Solemn Precinct 13. He had a phenomenal, huge hit with Halloween. And I know in between and all around, he was doing TV movies as well. So, like, you know, this is his fourth film. And it was kind of his first sort of, you know, bigger budget film. Like, Halloween was, you know, as we already stated, not made for a lot of money. And this is, like maybe three times the budget of Halloween at that point. But, you know, the other thing that helped Carpenter is, like, he had assembled a crew that he started picking up around, like, I'd say, Assault in Precinct 13 and kind of formulated with Halloween because, like, a lot of the people that worked on Halloween worked on The Fog, obviously. Deborah Hill produced both. Tommy Lee Wallace was editor and production designer. Dean Cundey was the DP. You know, obviously... Returning cast, Charles Cyphers, Jamie Lee Curtis, Nancy Loomis, you know, he he was building, like, his own, like, stable mm-hmm. of, like, actors and crew and all that. And I agree with you. He was doing his own thing where other people not necessarily were. But I think that's why he, he stood out and still stands out now. And the same with, like, if you think about those Cronenberg movies that were coming out at the time and, like, you know, Romero and, you know, all the big heavy hitters of the horror genre that were like making their masterpieces kind of like all in a row, you know, they were doing their own thing, but you know, Carpenter was coming from a, I think a different place because like, I think he liked horror and he liked sci-fi enough, but like he also loved Howard Hawks and Alfred Hitchcock and things like that, which both of those come into play in like his previous movies as well as this movie just kind of like getting back to the fog itself and not necessarily like all the nuts and bolts that are going into it. Like, you know, this first 20 minutes is essentially, you know, it's there to do two things. It introduces all the main players and you start seeing all the otherworldly supernatural shit. That's just starting to wake up because now it's midnight on the centennial. And, you know, after you get a little bit of like, you know, fog over the ocean, that kind of stuff. You go, they kind of cut to the local church where Father Malone, played by Hal Halbrook, is. And speaking of John Carpenter, since this is his film, he also has an extended cameo in it because he plays the kind of handyman or janitor that works at the church. You know that, uh, you know that meme of, of Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the, like pointing or whatever? That was me mm-hmm. when that happened. <laughs> I, I think Carpenter said, like, that was the last time he did an on-camera appearance like that until, like, maybe body bags or something like that. He's like, yeah, me trying to do my three measly lines with, like, a esteemed actor, Hal Halbrook, who, funny enough, was not a fan of The Fog. Hmm. Well, like, apparently he, he fucking hated the movie. Well, he, he killed it in it. I mean, he was great yeah. in it. It's too bad he didn't like it. I was on a punk message board years ago, like Profane Existence, and there was someone on there, I wish I could remember the user's name, who met Hal Halbrook because he was acting in a play in Canada somewhere, and they came up to him and said, hey, I really love you in the fog. He's like, that piece of shit. <laughs> and like, pro- 
broke that dude's heart. I whoever you are, I'm I'm sorry I can't remember your name, but like I, I always remember that story because it's just like, God damn, that's just that's just heartbreaking. Matt it kind of reminds me when like I met Tom Atkins like in two thousand and five or whatever, and I told him like really like Halloween three, and he looked at me like I was fucking with him and was getting ready to punch me because he thought I was fucking with him, you know. <laughs> but t- time heals wounds, I guess. Maybe not for Hal Halbrook. I mean, on the commentary where um, it's Carpenter and um, Deborah Hill, which I think was recorded in the nineties, like John's like, yeah, Hal didn't like the movie, still doesn't like the movie. He's great in it, but hates the movie. But kind of back to the scene. So you got Father Malone just having some wine, hanging out. And you get the vocal introduction of Stevie Wayne, played by Adrian Barbeau, over the radio. Which is kind of the through line that kind of is all throughout the movie. Even though she's not in every scene. Who I believe was uh, married to John Carpenter at the time. Correct. Yeah, they were married. Uh, they met on one of the TV movies he did. I, I forget what it's called. I think it's like someone's watching me or something along those lines. I think I got written down somewhere. We'll figure it out. Uh, as we go through the notes, I will find out what it is. I could easily IMDb it, but like, eh, I don't feel like doing that. But anyway, that's kind of her vocal introduction through the radio station. And it's kind of a cool character intro. Like really, really cool, I think. Because, like, even though she's not in every frame of the movie, she's always in the movie because of the radio. She she owns the radio station, I believe. She does own it. She owns and operates. And I guess there's a backstory, but like, we'll get... Yeah, as, as in she's the she owns it, and she's the only person that works there. Mm-hmm. Except for when they have, like, I guess pre-record tapes playing during the day, which kind of makes sense. But I, I think there's a little bit of backstory. We'll kind of get to it when we get a little bit later in the as we break down scenes here. So, you know, have that going. Carpenter's handyman takes off, and then you get your first real supernatural moment happening when the piece of the church wall breaks off, and it reveals a journal written by Father Malone's grandfather that kind of recaps the Matchin story, and Matchin played by um, John Houseman, but with more detail and more of the sordid detail. Obviously, later in the movie, it kind of goes into more things, but more or less, it's like the six founders of Antonio Bay, including Malone's grandfather, deliberately sank a clipper ship named the Elizabeth Dane so that its wealthy, leprosy-afflicted owner Blake would not establish a leper colony nearby. So once they sunk the ship, they stole their gold and basically used it to fund the, the town and thus make Antonio Bay. Basically, blood money. I guess people did that back in the day. I mean, obviously. People were dicks back in the day. I mean, yeah, it's just like, if you think about enough American history, it's like, the only reason America exists is because the people coming over here were fucking dicks. People are dicks. People are dicks. I, I guess this... Is it just that sums up human history. <laughs> just people are dicks. I, I, I feel like this fog episode is now becoming a dick episode, too, somehow. Here we are. Here we are. Ah... <sighs> Again, no actual penises on screen in the fog. If you were if you were tuning in to learn that, I'm sorry to disappoint you. But anyway, like, you know, obviously a lot of the information that's in the journal comes to more of a head later on in the movie, but like everything that like you need to know is in that journal and set up and that's when Father Malone re- realizes like some shit's getting ready to go down. So next we kind of move along to a little montage of like supernatural shenanigans 
And you got more Stevie Wayne radio show underneath. You got voices, jazz music. And the way the montage plays out, and they actually do it a couple times in this movie, is very reminiscent to the end montage in Halloween, where you revisit different locations that take place in the film. This is more or less just like, you know, different places around Antonio Bay, where like everything's closed because it's night, and you get like, you know, you get payphones ringing, you got shit shaking at a grocery store, you get, you know, headlights flashing, like a I think a TV moves or explodes in um, Nancy Loomis's character's apartment. You get all kinds of stuff. And all this stuff, I believe, was shot by Deborah Hill doing a second unit, which is like, you know, that's part of low-budget filmmaking. Like, John's shooting the A-camera stuff. She's going out getting pickup shots and, like, you know, they're really building up, you know, stuff in this movie. One thing I want to mention, the grocery store in this movie, if you live in Los Angeles or if you're just visiting Los Angeles, you can go visit. It is the Laurel Canyon Country Store. Um, I'm not going to give you the address because you should have Google and can look that up. Plus, like, there's no way you're going to be typing the address as I'm saying on the podcast. It's, you know, just use Google. And, in fact, if you wanted to, since you're already on Google anyway looking this up, there's a bunch of other carpenter locations in L.A. that you can look up and you kind of make a day of it. I, my wife actually took me on this kind of trip back, um, I'm trying to think when, maybe it's like 2014, maybe, 13, I don't know, years are blur, but basically I recommend you can start in downtown LA, you can hit a couple of the places where they live with shot, a lot of that stuff is gone, unfortunately, but you can see the church from Prince of Darkness down there, which is really, really cool. Then you want to kind of head up, I guess, north to South Pasadena. It's weird saying going north to South Pasadena, but that's what you have to do. And you can see all sorts of Halloween locations, including the Michael Myers house, you know, also locations from Halloween, too. And I think maybe some of Christine was shot in South Pasadena, too. Lots of stuff there. And then you want to hit west and you'll go to the Laurel Canyon Country Store. For your visit to the fog and then you're going to go south to hollywood to orange grove for where the wallace house from halloween is located and while you're there you can visit another famous genre house which is nancy's house from a nightmare on elm street the one with the red door the the, the wallace house and the elm street house are on the same street like they're actually like a couple houses apart anyway so back to the movie now that we have some supernatural shenanigans going on, the movie introduces its next character, which is Nick Castle, played by Tom Atkins. And this is Tom's first appearance in a John Carpenter movie. And if his character name sounds familiar, it's because Nick Castle, a real person, played the shape in Halloween and went on the right Escape from New York with John Carpenter. Not to mention, he was also in a band with Carpenter and Tommy Lee Wallace called the Coupe de Villes, who... Did a very, very infamous music video for Big Trouble in Little China. Big Trouble in Little China. The Little China part, that's Nick Castle. That That's his vocals. He does, he does the higher falsetto and Carpenter does the baritone. Uh, and Nick Castle went on later to become a director in his own right. And probably the most famous film he's known for is he helmed The Last Starfighter. I was uh, I was surprised to see uh, Tom Atkins without a mustache. Yeah, it's it, it's freaky when you see Atkins in his non-mustache roles. It's just it's so 
I don't want to say it's weird, but, like, you kind of get used to them because, like, you know, Halloween 3 had one, Night of the Creeps. I think at a certain point from, like, maybe Escape from New York on. Actually, yeah, because, like, he also did Creep Show. He doesn't have a mustache. Hmm. Yeah, it's just those those weird movies where Tom Atkins doesn't have a mustache. But before we get more into Atkins and his rare mustacheless appearance in a movie, I should also mention that Carpenter had a little thing about naming his friends characters in his scripts. He's done this a lot. Tommy Wallace was used in Halloween and again in The Fog, this time played by Buck Flower. Dan O'Bannon, who he went to USC with and was Carp- and co-wrote Dark Star with Carpenter, which was Carpenter's first like feature-length film. That's another friend of Carpenter's. He went on to write Alien and, of course, went on later to write and direct Return of Living Dead. And his char- his name is name-checked by Charles Cipher's character in the film. I think there's a couple other ones in this movie. There's also, if you watch Escape from New York, there's a bunch of other ones. Because there's like a Romero, a Cronenberg, and all that stuff. Like, it, it's kind of cool. Now everyone does it. So you have a lot of, like, Cronenbergs and Raimis and Romeros and, like, tons of fucking shitty independent horror movies. And some good ones, too. So it was cool when Carpenter did it. At this point, please don't name your character Carpenter. Or Cronenberg. Or Romero. Or Craven. It's done. It, it, that, that ship has sailed. This is kind of interesting because, as we're talking about Atkins, like, he doesn't have a mustache in this movie. But he does have a lot of the other things that he kind of became famous for in his career. You know, he, he, Tom's a great actor and all, but like, there's a certain period where like, there's two things that come to mind when you see Tom Atkins on the screen. One, he's drinking a beer at some point. While driving. Two. While driving, yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. Early on, he's got a beer in his hand just driving around his, like, beater pickup truck. Road road soda. Road soda. (laughs) Uh, There was a time where, like, I think you could get pulled over by a cop with a beer in your hand. They'd be like, you might want to put that in the cup holder while you're driving. Keep both hands on the wheel and send you're on your way. Be careful getting home. Nowadays, that's that's a $4,000 DUI fine or something. To be clear, we're old, but that's before our time. That is before our time. Yeah, it, the good old days where you just drive around with a beer with no repercussions. And if you wrecked your car, it's just like, oh, man, tough break. We'll give you a ride home. Man, the world has really fucking changed, hasn't it? Probably in this case for the better. You don't need a bunch of people driving around with beers. And, yeah, whatever. Anyway, just back on track. The, the, the other point I was trying to make is, besides drinking, Tom also became known as a ladies' man in genre movies. And it happens in the fog, and happens in Halloween 3. And, you know, it's he just, like, meets a woman, and, like, a scene later, he's in bed with him. Which just gave him this ladies' man mystique. Again, I don't know if that shit flies in 2021, but, like, I don't know. I think a lot of women still dig Tom Atkins. Dad bod. It kind of reminds me of when we had Tom Atkins at Beyond Fest, and um, I actually had the pleasure of co-moderating this Q&A with Grant, Grant Moniker of the American Cinematheque and Beyond Fest, and it was after we did a Tomathon, so we showed Halloween 3, Night of the Creeps, and The Fog. And I'm just going to play this real quick clip of him talk about working with Carpenter on the fog. John is a, a really good old friend. Although we don't see each other much, he stays in his house and plays uh, video games and watches 
NBA basketball games, and he's famous for that. He's kind of reclusive. He's not a real social guy, but he is a really wonderful director and a good man, and I love him dearly. And we had a great time working together on The Fog and um, Escape from New York. And, yeah. And he, um, he produced Halloween 3, him and Deborah Hill, although he did not direct it, but he had a little bit of the music in there is his and some is uh, Alan Howorth's, I think. But, yeah, he was great to work with. He, he gives you a nice framework to work in to get to where he wants you to go, and, and he's, uh, he's easy. Nice. Good guy. That's probably one of my favorite Q&As I ever had a chance to be part of. And, like, Tom had so many fucking amazing quotes throughout it. Like, at, at one point, I got him basically to say, fuck anyone who doesn't like Halloween 3. When they asked me to do Halloween 3, there was no Michael Myers in it. And it never occurred to me that anybody would be pissed off about it. <laughs> and as you say, fuck them. I know. <laughs> So, so I mean, yeah, I'll put that on my tombstone, or at least my resume. Got Tom Atkins to say, fuck people, fuck you if you don't like Halloween 3. And the Q&A closed with someone asking him for romance advice. Again, because like everyone's like, Tom's this ladies' man. And you know what his romance advice was? <laughs> Do tell. Grow a mustache. <laughs> Hell yeah. Despite the fact that he doesn't have a mustache in this movie. But you know it's there. You know that mustache was raring to grow, so I don't know. Enough about Atkins and his mustache. We should talk about who he's picking up. So his character, Nick Castle, is driving around, drinking a road soda, as you eloquently stated. And he picks up a hitchhiker named Elizabeth, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, who more or less was just following up her star turn in Halloween. And I think... She basically wanted this role because it was the exact opposite of Laurie Strode in Halloween. This character is like a free spirit, sexually liberated, not a prude, you know, not scared to drink a beer. Yeah, so he offers her the beer in the car. Yeah. As he's drinking it, and that's the... <laughs> Sharing a road soda. The... <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be rude not to share. That's true. I mean... It's kind of weird watching now. It's like you're just sharing a beer, not offering one. There's surely more beer in the car. You know, you know, there's a, <laughs> you know, there's an 18 pack of whatever that beer was. What was it like? It was either Paps or like Miller Lite or some shit. Yeah, it, Budweiser. Yeah, it, you know that character did not have a single beer with him. There was a cooler in the back, iced down, plenty of road sodas to go around. But, I mean, maybe he was getting around to offering it, because before they get, you know, they're doing some small talk chat, like, another supernatural thing happens, which is, like, boom, back of the window of his truck explodes. And they just, like, slam on the brakes and be like, what is going on? You know, and they're kind of like, he does go, like, kind of, what the fuck, but, like, dude, if something like that happened, you'd be more than just like, what the who, what was that? <laughs> You'd be freaking the fuck out if that happened. What the fuck just happened? Like, all the fucking windows just exploded? Like, you know, Jamie Lee's character, like, is definitely, like, frightened by it. And it's just like, this is just like another day of the office. I mean, the, the depending on how many beers he already had at this point, he's just used to it. I don't know. But he's like, again? 
This happened again. Why does this keep happening to me? Every hundred years. <laughs> Every hundred years. Like his character is like fucking. <laughs> his character is like 150 years old. Great shape. How do you stay healthy? Just drinking a beer a day. I guess when we get to the next scene, just being so nonchalant about like a very weird thing happening, I guess plays into his favor. Anyway, moving on. The next thing, you know. This whole time, you know, we've been constantly hearing Stevie Wayne's voice. And now, actually meeting Stevie Wayne herself. And this is where we discover that her radio station is at a lighthouse. Which, you know, for an idea location for like a radio station or like anything really that's beyond the function of lighthouse, it's a really cool idea. Truly. I don't know how functional that really is to, to run a, a radio station and a lighthouse at the same time by yourself, but uh, but it's a cool concept. I, I kind of get the idea that she's just like subletting just to do the radio station there and someone else like comes and takes care of the lighthouse. Or maybe I'm just thinking too much of it. You know, that suspension of disbelief, like, you know, whatever. But like, I do think like even regardless of the reality of actually having a radio station in a lighthouse, I just think it's a cool idea because it's a really cool location, really atmospheric. I'd work at a radio station in a lighthouse. And hey, you get to see the fog come in first. Well, eh, maybe not. Okay, I don't want to work at a radio station with a, at a lighthouse. Let's move <laughs> on from that. But uh, more about Adrienne Barbeau, who this was her first feature film. She had done some TV and TV movies previously, including... One directed by Carpenter called Someone's Watching Me. See, I told you we'd eventually get to it. Is that what I said earlier? I can't remember if that is or not. Regardless of what title I said, it's actually called Someone's Watching Me. And, you know, she's doing the sexy radio voice and all that. And she kind of like, this is where we start getting into the actual star of the movie. The fog itself, because the fog's coming in. So she's on the phone with Charles Cipher's Dan O'Bannon character, who's a meteorologist who, you know, is calling about the fog bank that's rolling in. And since it's a small town, everyone knows everyone, I guess. And they're like, hey, there's a group of guys that we know out there fishing. We better say something over the radio to warn them that this fog is coming in. And you also got Charles Cipher's doing like some creepy, like hitting on Adrian Barbo's character stuff. Again, probably wouldn't fly now. Someone has canceled the meteorologist. That'd be a weird profession to get canceled in. You're done, son. We're coming from your job. Don't like how you're pointing at those rain clouds. So, I again, as we're, we're still in that first, like, 20, 25 minutes of the movie, this is all, you know, setting up and getting in. So now we're, we're, we're heading to where the fog is, which is out the water, and we have these three fishermen. They're played by James Canning. Buck Flower, and Friend of the Void, John Goff. And they're doing what all fishermen do best, which is drink. Now, if if you call a beer in a car road soda, what do you call a beer on a boat? Throwing a few back with the boys. So anyway, these guys are just drinking on the boat, listening to Stevie Wayne on the radio, shooting the shit. They, see the, they hear about this fog, they look outside, it's like, yeah, there's some fog rolling in. So at this point... We can go into a little bit more detail about some of the reshoots that happened on the fog. As we stated earlier in the podcast, Carpenter and everyone watched the initial rough cut and realized it just didn't work, and they had to beef stuff up. And this is one of the scenes that 
they had to beef up. I think there was no, in the original cut, there was no on-screen violence with the, the leper ghosts. So Buck Flower and John Goff were longtime friends and collaborators. They wrote scripts together, and they appeared with each other in countless fl- films, including The Witch Who Came From the Sea, Tammy and T-Rex, and Drive-In Massacre. And it was a screening of Drive-In Massacre that I hosted with Severn Films back in 2016, where I met John. I had him on, and, you know, obviously we're talking more about Drive-In Massacre, but I did throw some questions about The Fog, and he told this really, really great story about how... They had shot their scene, they were done, and then the production came back. It's like, hey, we need you to come back and shoot some stuff. So Buck and John decided, like, well, we're going to ask for more money because they can't really afford to recast us. So they end up they end up getting a more like a more a bigger paycheck out of it. And I guess Carpenter didn't take any offense to that because um, Buck actually appeared in a few more Carpenter movies after that. He was in Escape from New York. He's also in They Live, and I think he has a little tiny role in body bags as well. He might appear in some other ones too, but those are the main three I'm thinking about. And Goff also appeared in They Live. He's actually the um, the They Live alien on the cover. Like, that's him. Like, the alien you see, the one in the business suit, that's Goff. Okay. John, one of my favorite people. I've had him... I think I've had him out three times. I had him out for Driving Massacre, which came from C, and Hundra, which he has a small role, and he co-wrote with Matt Simber. And... Again, love John and like he. I, at some point, we should have John on because he's got a long history of like exploitation filmmaking from like the seventies through the eighties through the nineties, and like he's got tons of great stories. So, actually, he I got him to come out for when um Beyond Fist did Tammy T Rex and Jonah Ray, friend of the Void, did the Q and A with him too. So John's a great guy, incredible stories. Incredible career, and I think him and Matt Simber are still working together and writing stuff as well. Last thing I heard was they they were working on a remake or a reboot of a movie Matt had directed in the 70s called The Candy Tangerine Man, and they were supposed to do it with Snoop Dogg. I don't know if that's still happening or not, but I kind of hope it is, because love Matt, love John. I think it'd be kind of cool if that happened. Now, back to what happens to poor Buck and John in this movie, is that... You know, these ghosts, they see the ship and they're like, holy shit, what's going on? And then all of a sudden they're getting stabbed from every angle with swords and like, you know, those kind of like scythes. Is that what you call those like circular blade things? Something like that. Well, actually, that's another thing is like, I was like, does that motherfucker like that's the one thing that I thought was kind of pirate esque, right? Like I thought he had a hook for a hand. (laughs) But maybe it was just a scythe. But like, yeah, I thought that was like the one kind of little pirate. Like, I don't know why I keep going back to pirate. Like, it's a hundred years. Like, were there pirates a hundred years ago? Like, I mean, kind of. There's pirates today, but not like the parrot hook for hand. I mean, there's pro- pirates and privateers and stuff like that. And you know, I mean, some of it, like I, I think a lot of people confuse them for pirate ghosts because like they do pull out a giant sword that looks like, you know, one of those swashbuckling swords that you see, like like Errol Flynn would use in like some like pirate movie or like it's something like that. So that there is a pirate vibe to it, but like I don't hold it against it. Again, not a big pirate movie fan or pirate fan in general. Although I, it's not it's not lame pirates. No. These are actually really scary ghost pirates or ghost lepers or whatever you want to call them but i mean they got they're at sea so 
they're all, they're coming off a boat, so it, it's natural. So you're getting the ghost attack, and like obviously they punch stuff, but it really isn't all that graphic. You don't get too much blood. You definitely, I think, Goff's character, you see the sword go through him, and you see some like. I was gonna say truthfully, this is what sold it for me. Like you know, the build up to it's great. I mean, the the everything. I mean, everything about it. The cinematography. I'm loving this thing, but then it gets to this scene, and again, it's not that gory, it's not that crazy, but it still just kind of goes for it just enough that I'm just like, fuck yeah, let's go with this movie. Oh, and I 100% agree, and like, you know, Dean Cundy's lighting on this stuff is just masterful, because like, you know, it's dark, but like, you can see stuff, and like, you know, it's, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to any of the other DPs that Carpenter worked with throughout his career, but his five film collaboration with Cundy created some of the most iconic imagery in genre filmmaking period. You know, everything from Halloween, this movie, escape from New York, the thing, obviously. And of course, big trouble in little China. So like they've, they've created a variety of like iconic images together. And it's just like, I mean, there's a reason why Dean got snatched up for a period and was working for like, you know, Robert Zemeckis on back to the future. And then Steven Spielberg for Jurassic park and, films like that so we get our first real ghost attack here and then the film returns to the atkins jamie lee curtis storyline and shockingly the setup of lady man ladies man tom atkins comes to full fruition because he's in bed with jamie lee curtis's character like literally like you pick up a hitchhiker the back of your wind back window of your truck explodes and then you're laying in bed looking at her sketchbook. How do you get from exploding window to in bed? I don't know. Probably, probably was the window was the, the, the catalyst there. It was just like this, you know, this, this happened to us. This crazy thing happened to us. I mean, it could be. <laughs> we'll, ne- we'll never know. Cause we were not privy to that part of the story, but it, it, I mean, he didn't even have the mustache yet. I know. I mean, this one is just like, it's, for something that doesn't seem like it's realistic, it feels like it's completely realistic, even though it is kind of ridiculous that we get to that point. It, I I will say the seduction scene in Halloween 3, that's not even really a seduction scene. It's just like, where would you like to sleep at, Chalice? you know damn where well where I want to sleep at kind of thing. But like what it really this scene functions as is like a red herring, essentially, because you're getting another scare. And you get like that ghost with the scythe or whatever banging on the door. And like, you know, Atkins, Nick Castle's just taking his time, got to put his pants on, got to take a drink of beer, starts walking towards the door. And then... You get a shock, but not from the ghost. You get the clock breaking at 1 a.m. So what this does is basically sets up the rules and limitations of what these ghosts can and can't do. So basically, now that the curse is in effect, they essentially have an hour to do what they need to do. Which, if you're out to sea as a ghost, I feel like an hour is not enough time. But then coming back to it, it's like, I guess they can't kill people until it's dark. I, I don't know how this works. Again, maybe I'm just just throw out logic here, but like basically, 1am saves Atkins' character's ass in this movie. You, you Basically, we're now at the 
I guess the first third of the runtime is now up at this point. The first 20, 25, maybe close to 30 minutes of this movie is now there. And, like, again, setting up characters, get a ghost attack, get a lot of supernatural elements, and, you know, lots of exposition weaved in that, like, sets things up for the next two-thirds. Obviously, this movie's a bit of a slow burn, which, again, is probably another reason why I, you and I probably didn't connect with this movie when we were younger. Because I, when I think back of what I was watching in high school and the kind of movie The Fog is, like, I was watching a lot of gore shit and, like, extreme horror and, like, crazy stuff. So when you're watching something that, like, takes time to build and get there and the payoff isn't necessarily, like, an exploding head or a body being ripped apart or, like, any of that stuff, like, you know, what a teenage kid wants out of a horror movie like jason coming in and like hitting someone with a machete or whatever you know that kind of stuff like this movie wasn't it and i again and i've said this before and i'm gonna say this probably multiple times it's just like you know this movie's just aged well and i think because it's a slow burner and it takes time to like build its story it's a lot better movie than like a lot of the core movies i was watching at the time and it's not saying i don't dislike those gore movies but like i feel like again i've grown away from that stuff and kind of grown more into like a movie like the fog if that makes sense at the time i was probably watching things like faces of death yeah (laughs) so this didn't do much for me at the time at the same time i was seeing the fog i was getting bootlegs of like necromantic and necromantic 2 and stuff like that and Right on. And yeah, you were, you were passing those along to me at the time as well. So I, yeah, I was seeing those same sort of things. Just like at the time I was looking for extreme shit. Yeah. And, and again, like, you know, I think this movie is like it, I know like teenagers went and saw it when it came out originally, but I, I just feel like this is kind of a movie that's more mature in a way that like, again, I think it was just ahead of the curve and like, you know, a little bit more, sophisticated for what I was prepared for at the time. And we're going to talk more about that as we continue to discuss John Carpenter's The Fog on 421, The Fog Day, or a different day if you're listening to it on a day that isn't 421. But we're going to take a quick break and we're going to have more of The Fog on the Cinematic Void podcast. Unbearable suspense keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinematness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinematness Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, see you in the void. Welcome back. It's 421, and just because you see all this fog and smoke around doesn't mean it's leftover from 420. Oh no, we're talking about John Carpenter's The Fog here on the Cinematic Void podcast. And we're moving on to the, I guess I would say the second act of the movie now. And it kind of kicks off in bright daylight on a beach and you get introduced to Andy Wayne who's the son of DJ Stevie Wayne he's like running on a beach unsupervised which I guess you could do that in the 80s I I, I think there was a point where people used to talk about we used to leave our doors unlocked at night 
It was safer back then. But was it really? Yeah. I don't know. I could probably just leave my door unlocked most nights. Like, I don't think people are going around, like, checking my door. Yeah. I I mean, but it just seems weird. Maybe because I'm just more paranoid. Like, it's like, why the fuck would you leave your house unlocked at any point? Never. I mean, this is why, like, you know, child abductions and serial killers were so big in the 60s and 70s. Because people did dumb shit, like, leave their house unlocked. Or, like... Oh, that's fine. Just go go play. Don't tell us where you're going, little Johnny. Oh, if you see a guy offering you candy, just it's fine. Just take the candy. You're like, there's nothing wrong with these people. I don't know, man. Golden State Killer, Richard Ramirez, they're just jumping in people's fucking windows. Shit, yeah, man. They just 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 trying the fucking door. Just open it right up. Boom. If you're a time traveler listening to this podcast, my only advice to you is lock your fucking windows and doors. But you know. I mean, if you're not a time traveler, it's probably good advice, too. It's just... Anyway. So, you know, you got young Andy Wayne running around on the beach unsupervised. You know, we could get smashed by a wave. A fucking shark could jump out and eat him. One of those fucking weird Venus flytrap creatures from Blood Beach could take him out. You know, there, there's countless things. I don't think the beach is, like, necessarily a safe place. I'm not a big beach person, so I, I don't like sand. Sand bothers me. But anyway, this little kid's running around and, you know, he's going by the water and he sees something shiny and that he finds this, like, gold doubloon or gold coin. I don't know if it's doubloon. I don't know what the difference between a coin and a doubloon is. I'm sure there is. If you're a coin expert, let me know. Because I don't know what the fucking difference is. If you're a doubloon expert, let me know. Yeah. (laughs) I'll handle the coins. You'll, ha- <laughs> you'll handle the doubloons. And also want to give a shout out to the guy on Twitter that actually clarified that it was Rocky Four from the last episode. Right on. Thank you. Thank you for the clarity. Unlike us being two lazy asses who tell people to use Google, who refuse to use Google to find out a very basic question, I, I commend you. Thank you, sir. Anyway. So he finds this doubloon slash coin and he goes to grab it and all of a sudden there's like a, you know, quick little effect i actually it's a you know it's the easiest trick in the book you just cut and then there's something else there but it's really effective because they you know a little bit of sound music cue and ocean breaks it just it makes it this coin transform into this piece of wood that just says dane on it not to be confused with dane cook at all it just shocker yes shocker it's just you know i i know he's big at one point but i don't think dane cook was big enough to have a pirate ship at any point this is a pirate ship with a, a, a like the black pirate flag, but with the shocker <laughs> like hand gesture. <laughs> imagine be, imagine being out to sea and seeing that fucking flag coming at you. He just rolls up on you. I, you're fucked. You're fucked, man. You're <laughs> gonna you're gonna get ninety minutes of a fucking like stand up set that you don't want to hear, man. <laughs> coming to port near you. <laughs> Man, I'd rather be murdered by a pirate than that happen. <laughs> but, that, so, the Dane that's written on this piece of wood is actually Elizabeth Dane, which was the name of Blake the Leper slash maybe pirate. Don't think he was a pirate, just a rich, a nice guy that had leprosy that owned a boat and just wanted to set up somewhere. So, it's a piece of wood from this ship that this coin magically transforms into. So, Little Andy picks it up and he runs back home. And, you know, I'll say this is just like, it's an effective little gag. But then he runs home and he wakes up his mom, who's been sleeping after a long night at the radio station. 
and shows her this piece of wood. And you get a little subtle pan when they're in the house as he's running back, and you see pictures, which kind of sets up her backstory. They never really go into super detail, but you see at one point she was married. Don't know what happened to the dad, husband. Could have died. Who knows? I don't know. Never spelled out. But it also, you know, you see the last picture is her, like, you know, buying this lighthouse to open up this radio station thing. So it just gives a backstory. The other thing I'll say is when he wakes up Stevie or Andy wakes up his mom complete, you know, because all women go to sleep in perfect makeup and hair, you know, one of the weirdest things about movies is that it, it sets an unfair expectation. It's like, Oh man, I I'm just waking up, but I'm like amazing. Yeah, if you wake, if you wake me up from a nap, you need to give me like 10 minutes. You need to give me more than 10 minutes. Like I, I need to like get up. I need to like, there's some coffee on take a shit you know man it's just man if a kid's run up to me with a piece of wood like i wouldn't handle it as well as like stevie wayne did but you know it's also her son so it's gotta gotta have some leeway there so she you know looks at this piece of wood and she's like all right i'm just gonna like take it with me when i go to work one thing i like about this movie is you get a lot of information without being hit over the head like granted the like you know, the ghost story and the history, that all has to be spelled out because, like, you know, if you do it all visual cues, people are going to miss shit. But, like, the character background development, like, it's it's really subtle. Like, even, like, you know, Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis being in bed together and looking at her sketchbook, like, you get more depth from the characters. Which is, you know, it's, it's a really nice quality in, like, for a horror movie because, like, a lot of horror movies, you get paper-thin characters who it doesn't matter if they live or die. So you get a little investment in the main the main characters, which is, I think, really nice. And speaking of Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis, we go back to their arc, and it turns out the people that disappeared on the boat, because now they found out, like, you know, the boat has vanished and didn't come back in, were friends of Atkins' Nick Castle character. And he goes to this, like, marina, and... You know, incidentally and kind of cool, it's a the marina that they shot this in was in Bodega Bay, which is most famous for where Alfred Hitchcock shot the birds. And it was intentional that Carpenter and Hill and everyone went up there and shot it. It's a little scene, but like, I think he definitely wanted to like push his Hitchcock influence with this and just do it like a little wink and a nod, you know? Where is that Bodega Bay? It's um, it's kind of in the same area. It might be uh, geographically. I'm not sure. It's up in Northern California, so it could be like it. It's all. I don't want to say it's in the same area, but like it's, it's roundabout. I, it's the only scene they shot there. But like, I actually I think there was some other things like when they were near the beach. A couple of the beach shots was kind of near there too. But like, I know like I think the um restaurant from the birds was like right near where they were shooting. It's not in the shop, but like I think on the commentary they mention it. So I saw the birds when I was pretty young, and seriously, that Bodega Bay, like that area, like that's in my dreams Whoa. sometimes when I go to sleep. Like you know what I mean? It's just never. Yeah, it's just it's a weird thing. It's just like burned into my fucking head. You know, it it reminds me like you know I don't think of the birds as this, but it really kind of is because it's located next to the ocean. It's like another little subgenre that. I guess kind of exists. It probably exists more than Italians making horror movies in Florida is the um, seaside horror. Like, you know, 
movies that take place on, like, you know, coastal towns and you got water. Stuff like Messiah of Evil, The Witch Came from the Sea, Dead and Buried, and stuff like that. It also kind of gives me, like, because, you know, I'm a big, like, Salem, Massachusetts guy and love going there and hopefully go there at some point sooner rather than later now that this pandemic stuff is coming to an end but like you know it's like just something about like seaside horror vibes is really strong which is another reason why i really really like this movie there's something just eerie about living near the ocean and i know that and there's also something comforting i i just kind of like that idea like maybe when i retire i'll get like a little little cabin near the beach not on the beach i don't want I don't want fucking sand in my house, but, like, you know what I mean. But, you know, now that we've kind of brought up Hitchcock, we're going to bring up more Hitchcock, but a different movie. I think there's actually three Hitchcock references in this movie, and this is the second one, and this one's the most overt, which is in the next scene, after they're at Bodego Bay and kind of decide they're going to go, you know, look for the fisherman, the missing fisherman's boat, you get introduced to Kathy Williams, who's played by none other than Janet Lee, who's probably most famous to most genre fans as, I don't want to say the star of Psycho, but like the de facto star of Psycho before she gets her- horrifically murdered in one of the greatest shocks that ever happened in cinema. Obviously, it's no longer, you can't, cultural osmosis has basically like spoiled that movie. So if you don't know what happened to Psycho at this point, I don't know what to tell you, man. Surely you've seen Psycho at this point. I mean, even if you haven't, you know about the shower scene. It's sort of like you don't have to see Citizen Kane to know that the fucking sled is called Rosebud. You know, it's just it's just one of those things that I think is like cultural conscious that like even if you don't see, you just somehow know because it's just so referenced even now. Janet Lee's in this movie and it's kind of like her casting is twofold for a lot of reasons. One, she's a great actor and obviously she was in a horror classic, which, you know, Putting a established actor that was in a bona fide horror classic in your movie, obviously, is a big marketing ploy. But the other part of it is she's the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis, which I'm assuming most people know. But if you don't, now you know. And obviously, this is also more marketing involved. You're combining Jamie Lee Curtis, the star of Halloween, the most recent iconic horror movie, with Janet Lee, the star of the previous decade, or I guess, yeah, close enough, decade, like, like, let's see, Psycho came out in 60, Halloween came out in 78, this, you know, 18 years previously, Janet Lee was in Psycho, which was, like, you know, a movie that changed horror genre, along with, like, Night of Living Dead and things like that. And because it's mother-daughter, you get all kinds of marketing tie-ins there, you know? see mother and daughter from famous horror movies in a horror movie together like it's really fucking smart filmmakers do i don't want to say novelty casting where like you pick an established horror icon and you basically kind of i don't want to say overpay sometimes it is like you're basically putting that name in to sell your movie based on the other movies you're that they've been in you know when you see like tony todd pop up it's like your first thing is like oh cool Candyman's in this movie or something like that so did did this one do well? Uh, this movie it it did okay, you know it did decent enough, and we'll we'll get more into like how it did a little bit later. Back to Jan Lee's character, she's assisted by Nancy Loomis. Nancy Loomis's character is Sandy, but she also played Annie in Halloween and was also in John Carpenter's Assault in Precinct Thirteen. And I think at the time, 
or at least at the time this that movie was made, she was married to Tommy Lee Wallace. They actually met on, I think, Assault in Precinct 13, or maybe it was Halloween, and they got married, and they were married for a little bit, and I think they got divorced sometime in the 80s. I don't know. Again, that's Carpenter's tight-knit unit of, like, actors and, like, you know crew working together more or less what um janet or jan lee and um nancy loomis characters doing they're they're planning this big soiree for the centennial at antonio bay they have this big event plan i i forget what like their actual jobs are but like their whole thing is like we need to do this really big grand event for 100 years one of the weirdest things again this is a thing if you think of the reality and this is just based on the actors playing them her character is married to one of the fishermen that disappear. And I think she was married to Buck Flowers' character. Which is like, when you look at her movie, she's all like, you know, proper, very classy. And then you see Buck Flowers' character, like, drinking beer on a fishing boat in a flannel shirt. It's like, were they married? <laughs> I mean, I guess it doesn't matter. I mean, it's just a plot tie-in. So, while that's all going on... You're, you're kind of cross-cutting back and forth between Stevie Wayne driving to the radio station with a piece of the Elizabeth Dane boat you know, that her son found. And you also have Nick Castle with um, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, also called Elizabeth, going to look for his fisherman buddies. And you also have Kathy and Sandy discussing the events and Kathy's missing husband as they're heading towards like Father Malone's house. So Kathy and Sandy go and meet Father Malone. They can't find him. And there's actually... I'm not big on jump scares, but there's a really good one in this movie. And then they actually had to do a little bit of cheats to get it to work. I think they actually used the optical. So it's like Janet Lee's walk around the church and they can't find um, Hal Halbrook's father Malone. And he pops out of the shadows. It's a little bit similar to like the bit in, I don't know if you remember Halloween where like Jamie Lee Curtis is walking away from the doorway. And then all of a sudden you see the shape's face slowly come in the frame and like, like a little lighting trick. So it's, it's a gag similar to that, but this has definitely got like a music score sting and all that stuff. So it's a little bit of a scare and a non-scary scene. I, I think it's pretty good. I think it actually got me when I was rewatching it again too. Cause I, and I knew it was coming. I just forgot and just, ah, you know, it happens. <laughs> it's always funny when shit, you know, is coming and you get startled by it anyway, which kind of speaks to how good it is. So, after that jumps scare, you get more cross-cutting. You got Malone, Kathy, and Sandy sitting around going over the journal, learning about Blake's curse, and then you have Nick and Elizabeth investigating the boat. And as we get on the boat, you're getting to another one of the big reshoots, which is like basically boosting up the scare. And they find one of the fishermen's bodies there. And the way it's set up kind of reminded me of something out of Lucio Fulci's The Beyond or Gates of Hell. Obviously, this movie came out before both those movies, and I don't know if Fulci watched The Fog, but I do think, in a weird way, there if there is some, not in the gore per se, but in like the supernaturalness of it and the weird, like, eerie, like, Lovecraftian kind of vibe thing, I think there's some... There's some Fulci similarities there. I don't know if you agree or disagree. Yeah, yeah, I see it. It's good. It's the vibe. Yeah, and again, not in the gore, but just in like the the scares and the tone. And like, I I feel like the reveal scare of when the body pops out. Like, there's actually a fake out. There's one where like a, I think a like a locker 
opens up and a bunch of shit falls out and Jamie Lee Curtis is like, oh, whatever. And then the body drops down. So it's like, if you're going to have Jamie Lee Curtis in your movie at that time, who like, you know, made her bread and butter screaming her ass off in Halloween, you got to have one of those Hall of Fame screams in the fog. You just have to. Totally. I want to go back to what you're saying about it being similar to the Beyond and, and Lovecraft and stuff like that. Uh, so is the thing. So I'm curious. And and he referenced uh, Edgar Allan Poe. So I'm, I'm wondering if he was much of a Lovecraft fan or what that's the type of horror he was trying to do. That doesn't necessarily mean he was a fan of Lovecraft, but I wonder if there is a... Actually, he would, John Carpenter has stated many times he is a big fan of like the writings of H.P. Lovecraft, which, I mean, obviously, the, the closest he came to outright Lovecraft territory was in the Mouth of Madness, mm-hmm. True. which has a lot of Lovecraftian stuff in it. I mean, obviously, the thing has some, but like the thing is, you know, more of a play on like the original Howard Hawks movie and like, you know, setting the bar for special effects, but like. The most overt, I think, in Carpenter's filmography. Actually, there might be a little bit in his Village of the Dam remake, too. But, you know, I think he's touched upon it. He touches upon it a little bit in this movie. But the most overt is definitely in The Mouth of Madness. But yeah, right. I know for a fact he was he's a huge fan of Lovecraft's writing. And, you know, kind of going back to Lovecraft and the scare we were just talking about, like, you get another ghost story, this time from Tom Atkins, when he's talking about, like, his dad coming back where he found one of those gold coins or doubloons. Again, don't know what the difference is, if or if there's a difference. So he talks about the story that his dad had one, and his dad goes to show him the coin, and he goes in his pocket, and it's nothing but water in it. So it's like, you know, a vanishing act that kind of, like, it's a callback to when the like Andy Wayne finds that coin that turns into the piece of wood. So it's, it's a really great story. You get a scare, but then you then go to Adrian Barbeau as Stevie Wayne at her lighthouse radio station with that piece of wood that says Dane on it. And she sets it on a bunch of tapes and you know, you get some more spookiness in there. Like the, she's got like an autoplay tape on there. And like the voice you hear that's on like doing the radio voice talk, that's Tommy Lee Wallace. I think he does most of the radio stuff in those early Carpenter movies. You can hear him in Halloween. He does, obviously he's the voice of the Halloween three commercial, the silver shamrock commercial too. Right on. So you hear his voice and it starts slowing down. And that piece of wood changes from St. Dane to six must die. And then it catches fire. And then like, she goes and, you know, tries to spray and put it out. And then once it goes out, everything goes back to normal. So it's like a supernatural blip almost. We're starting to heat up. We're still slow burning, but like, you know, there's some sparks. There's some smoke coming from it. So we're kind of getting there. Again, like this movie, like everything that happens in this movie, and I know a lot of it was changed and fixed in reshoots and editing, but like it does pay off and it does play for it throughout the movie so you know you get the coin to the piece of wood you get a story from tom atkins is nick castle character that kind of like solidifies this is not the first time some shit like this has happened and then you get the you know the dane saying six must die which is you know that's a big thing because it kind of explains the ghost's motivation what they're doing which is six people need to die and then we got a revenge kind of thing at this point they only got three which is going to come into play a little bit here so after this you know exploding wood that seemed weird i don't know i i guess it is exploding wood 
I, I feel like it's weird to say exploding wood after the amount of dick jokes and dick references we've made so far, but it's that kind of podcast. We're just going to roll with it. We're now at the morgue where Nick and Elizabeth have dropped off the corpse of Dick's, Dick Baxter, which is the body they found. Again, more dicks. I'm not trying to do this. This is just natural. Whatever. Plenty of dicks to go around here. And the medical examiner is played by Darwin Jostin, who had previously appeared in another Carpenter movie, Assault and Precinct 13. He's like one of the criminals that helps when the police station is sieged. He also appears in um, David Lynch's Eraserhead, and I think he kind of pivoted away from acting and became like a driver on films. Because I, I, he ended up working with Lynch later on, but as a driver on like Wild at Heart and stuff like that. And another cool thing about his character in this movie, his character's name is Dr. Fives, which is obviously a nod to the abominable Dr. Fives, one of my favorite movies and very cool 70s like black comedy horror thing. What's happening in this scene is you're getting another scare of the Dick Baxter's course rising from the morgue slab. And this, again, was part of the reshoots that they kind of beef up to make more scarier. And again, from this, and I think it's just like, you know, just by the nature of how Fulci treated his zombies, it feels like a scene out of, like, the Beyond or Gates of Hell. Just the way the, the zombie gets up, or not the zombie, the dead body gets up, kind of like, it's moving towards Jamie Lee Curtis. And then, like, you don't see what happens. The body drops, she screams. Atkins in the... The medical examiner run in, and you see the corpse laying there, and you just see the, the number three written on the floor. Which, again, goes back to six must die. He's writing three. Three dead, three to go. Now, Carpenter said his big influence on the scene, or one of his things, he said he saw something similar to it as a kid. He said, I think he quoted saying the Tingler. I haven't seen the Tingler in, like, who knows when, so. But I, it definitely does also play, outside of, like, I think the folkiness just comes out of like how it plays out, but I think the the scare setup to it is like classic like 50s 60s horror, at least to me, or maybe 40s 50s 60s horror. You know. I wonder if uh, the the way the way that he sc- he scrawled three on the floor, like maybe there was some inspiration there with uh, uh, Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. That's a that's an interesting point because I know. Jackson was a fan of Carpenter and a fan of a lot of the gore stuff and stuff like that. It, it's always funny when Peter Jackson comes up because, like, you talk to one person, all they're going to talk about is fucking Lord of the Rings. But if you talk about it to a certain other group, you know, we're going to talk about his early gore films like Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, and Brain Dead, a.k.a. Dead Alive. It is the way the three is written is kind of similar how, like, they appeared on the Frighteners when, like, you know, people had the numbers on their forehead and shit like that. Mm-hmm. It it might just be a coincidence, but like if that's a homage, that's a pretty deep one, and that's actually a good one because like I like homages that like very few people could figure out. So if that is it, big ups to Pete, and I guess big ups to you because I never even thought about it. Now that we're talking about scares and how things are set up, I think it's a good point to talk about how the film is edited. And I was I watched the movie twice. I watched it on its own and I watched it with like kind of flipping back between the old Carpenter and Hill commentary and a more recent one which has Tommy Lee Wallace Tom Atkins and Adrian Barbeau on it and the one thing and this is more from the Carpenter Hill commentary they talk about like the editing style of this movie like the unlike Halloween the fog was basically made in the editing room 
because the way they shot Halloween, it's lots of long takes, you know, tracking shots, stuff on the Panaglide. And I think Deborah Hill referred to it as a very lyrical movie, whereas The Fog is, you know, it's built, if that makes sense. Because, like, you know, between the reshoots and, you know, changing the score and, like, putting in different shots and kind of, like, it, this movie's more created in the editing to make it work, whereas Halloween just kind of fell in place. And I think part of the methodology behind this was a bit conscious on, you know, John Carpenter's part, but I also think it was necessary because you had to reshoot and you can't do lyrical shots and then insert something in. It kind of, you know, breaks the flow. So I think it's just a change of philosophy. And I think it works well. And then, like, it also proves that, like, Carpenter, Hill, and everyone that worked on this movie could do something different. They're just not, you know, carbon copying Halloween, which is, you know, probably was the expectation for them. I know it was the expectation from the producers of Halloween until they realized that Carpenter and everyone, like, took a two-picture deal with AFCO Embassy. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I assume that all worked out because, like, again... Carpenter and Hill produced and worked on the those Halloween sequels. So, I mean, if you think about it, like that from 78 to like 82, Carpenter was on a hot streak, regardless if he was directing or not. Like, you know, the movies he was obviously making, but the ones he was also producing, you know, that Halloween 2 sequel was fucking huge. Halloween 3 didn't do well at the time, but, you know, again, like this movie, time proved it was right that the the reasoning behind it was right. So it it's kind of why I like, it's not that I'm trying to lump Halloween 3 and The Fog together, but I think it's just like movies that took time to be appreciated. It kind of always makes me wonder, had The Thing been a huge hit, what kind of career Carpenter would have had? Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of people like, The Thing is probably his most beloved movie outside of Halloween. I guess in some circles, The Thing is considered like his masterpiece. And, you know, that's a fair opinion. I'm not going to argue against it. But, you know, The Thing came out maybe like two weeks after E.T., which is kind of funny and fucked up because Universal put them both out. So Universal, like, more or less just, you know, put out the Kitty Alien movie, and then because that became a huge hit, it ended up tanking, like, the the adult, scary, gory Alien movie. I don't know. We're getting off track. But, like, I always do kind of wonder, had the thing been, like, a huge movie, what would have come, you know? Gosh, that one got a second life on VHS. Is that how that went down? Yeah, it it got a second life in VHS, and then just, like, home video, it just grew and grew and grew. It's, like, it it's one of those things. And it's just, like, you know, that's why when people, like, shit on movies, like, oh, it's got bad reviews and this and that. It's, like, you know, some movies just need time. It's, I guess what I'm saying, just overall, like, this, you know, and I, this even goes for Deborah Hill, because I think Deborah Hill was ahead of her time as well. Like, I, I, I feel like, you know, when people talk about Carpenter, they sometimes leave her out, but, like, she was just important to, like, all these movies. And, like, she went on and produced things on her own. She produced The the Dead Zone with David Cronenberg. She did um, Adventures in Babysitting. She did Clue. She did a lot of stuff after it. And she was a writer. She was a producer. Like... She did a lot, and, like, I feel like the the film she made with Carpenter that they made together are just, like, solid classics, you know? And, you know, she had taste. She knew how to produce the shit out of a movie. She knew what it needed to be good. And, you know, that's that's a rare thing. 
And, like, you know, history has proved her right. And funny enough, she came from Haddonfield, New Jersey, which is where Haddonfield, Illinois, came from. I don't know if you remember, like, ever traveling up the New Jersey Turnpike, but the second exit on that turnpike was Haddonfield and Voorhees, which I always thought was kind of funny. Totally. Awesome. But, you know, I, I guess we're getting a little off track here. So we've talked about the editing. We talked about the methodology. What we go into next is more montage of fog rolling in over the water, and it's cutting into where the town's starting to get ready, you know, for the big centennial event. But, like, there's this sense of dread and badness because the fog's rolling in. You also get a great scene where Janet Lee cries because she finds out that her husband, played by Buck Flower, is now dead. And as we've been talking about montages and editing and, like, you know, less lyrical in Halloween, this, t- this shot starts out as, like, a regular shot, and then Janet Lee walks out of frame, and Atkinson there, like, he starts walking, and the, the shot starts, like, you know, trucking back, and you see him grab a shot and goes to the other end of the bar where Jamie Lee Curtis is, which is, it, it's a really good shot, and you get a lot of information. But it's, I, I just thought it was funny, like, you know, thinking about, like, all the editing they did, and then, like, here's another lyrical shot. So it's not to say the fog doesn't have lyrical shots and, like, you know, long takes where things play out. It's just, like, there was other methods to tell the story. So it wasn't, again, a carbon copy of Halloween. So at this point, we're at the two-thirds mark of the film. So second act is wrapping up. And this is where Atkins' Nick Castle finally connects with Barbo's Stevie Wayne over the phone. And they're both... You know, basically sharing their opinion on what's this eerie fog, the supernatural stuff that's going on, and, you know, just realizing, like, something's up. So, Stevie calls the meteorologist, played by Charles Cyphers, about the fog. He's dismissive. He's like, oh, whatever. It's just fog. It's just weird. You know, it's you know, it's just right outside right now. What's the big deal? Charlie Cyphers figures out what the big deal is, because he's the next one that gets axed. Although, not really axed. I think it, it's the scythe thing that gets them. Or is it a sword? I can't remember. It's the uh, the hook for the hand. The hook for hand. If it was a pirate ghost, it would be a hook for hand. Because it's a leper ghost, it's a scythe or, I don't know, whatever. Anyway. That, that's a, that settles it. It's a scythe. I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> but yeah, so he, the meteorologist becomes the next victim. Or victim number four, which means there's two more left to fulfill the curse. And that attack scene is really cool because, like, you know, it's where they start, like, it's, again, it's Cundy's lighting. He's, like, it's really dark, and then you got the fog coming in, but that fog is backlit. So when those, like, ghosts come in the frame, they're just silhouette shadows, and it's just really creepy and really effective in how that counterbalance works. It's really, really just so good. You never really see their features, you know? No. It's just perfect. Yeah, it's like, it's, you know, again, back to the original thesis of this movie, old-fashioned ghost story. There you go. Except these ghosts got some weapons and ain't ain't afraid to shank a motherfucker. <laughs> but we're going to take a, another commercial break. But when we're in turn, we're going to close out on the final third of The Fog here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. Right outside my door now. Oh, there's something different about this fog. Dan, stay away from the door! John Carpenter's The Fog. (gasps) What you can't see won't hurt you. It will kill you. Now playing. 
Welcome back. If you see a lot of smoke in the air, it's because the slow burn is now really heating up as we talk about the fog here on the Cinematic Void podcast. We're now in the, I guess, the last third or the third act of the movie now. And we're just kind of talking about things we like about in each scene and, you know, random comments and other segues and try to avoid bringing up Dane Cook again. But, you know, could happen. Might happen. Sure, there'll be another dick reference at some point, but so anyway, as we said, we're in the the third act of the movie here. Things are starting to really pick up. You got the fog cutting power lines and phone lines, and like you know, basically cutting off communication in Antonio Bay, including Stevie Wayne's radio station. But luckily, she has a emergency generator and. Props to Stevie Wayne, Adrian Barbeau, because I sure as shit couldn't start a fucking generator. I couldn't start a fucking pool lawnmower when I was a kid. <laughs> Ain't no way I'm doing that. If that had been me in the movie, it's like, well, no power. I guess the fucking ghosts are going to fucking scythe me. You ever been to a, a punk show in the woods where there's a generator? I have. It's been a while, but like, I wouldn't be the guy starting that generator. You would have to get like the big tall dude in the Amoebics fucking sleeveless shirt doing it or something like that because i ain't doing it what we're getting at here is that we're we're building up to the the big climax here so basically you got a lot of stuff going on and then the big thing is you got the fog rolling to stevie wayne's house where her kid is who's being babysat by some old lady i guess this old lady that they know not just some random old lady he's like hey can you watch my son because we live in a town where it's okay to win, leave your doors and windows unlocked. So, random old lady, come watch my son. I, I think it's just someone that normally babysits. So, you get this sequence, which is really well done all the way through. You got Nick and Elizabeth, Atkins and JLC, coming to go rescue Stevie Wayne's son. And, basically, the old woman just like opens the door and gets fucking murked by these ghosts. So, that's number five. We got one more to kill before the curse is done. And, of course, it's old lady. It, it, the victims of this movie are kind of weird if you think about it. It's like three fishermen, a meteorologist, and an old lady babysitter. Not your typical 80s body count by any stretch of the imagination. Which is another thing I think is really interesting because you got to think, you know, 80 was when Friday the 13th and all the slashers were coming. So, this, this probably predates or was coming out around the same time but like you know there's a big difference between like the body count in this movie and the body count in say a friday 13th like you know lots of like women being murdered so it's like i mean again this is another reason you know carpenter kind of stepped away from what he had done in halloween where i think victims actually halloween had a good mix of victims you had you know men you had women you know this it's kind of thing is more like the later slashers that came very, very, very focused on killing women. And this movie, like the only woman that gets killed is an old lady. Not trying to say I condone murdering old ladies or anything like that. I, I just think it's an interesting thing because again, this movie is made against the trends that were happening. And even when they went back to kind of retrofitted to like more modern taste for 1980, it's still, not in the same wavelength, you know, which, you know, I, it's definitely a choice, but you know, right now is like definitely that slow burn that's been building this whole movie. It's now on fire. 
And it's really starting in that sequence when the ghosts kind of like start breaking in to Stevie Wayne's like house and trying to get her son after they murk the old lady. And this is where you kind of like, or I should say, this is where kind of Carpenter kind of goes back into what a little trope that he really likes, which is sieges or siege films. Like he's a big fan of Howard Hawks, Rio Bravo, and obviously Assault and Precinct 13 is essentially a siege movie where you have criminals trying to break break in the police station it's also you know influenced by night living dead where you have like zombies breaking in and that kind of stuff so he really likes siege things and what he's doing is he has two concurrent sieges going on you have like nick and elizabeth rescuing stevie wade's son and then you have um janet lee and nancy loomis's character rushing to go to the church where there's more ghosts coming and then you also have the ghosts coming to the lighthouse trying to get Stevie Wayne as well. So you have like all these, which kind of makes me think, how many fucking ghosts were on this ship? Because, I mean, there's there's a lot of them, and there's multiple ghosts at each spot, so they're all like covering ground. How many motherfuckers died in this, at this uh, crash? So there, there's a lot of good action happening now in this movie. And, you know, you obviously have like, you know, Nick Castle's truck being stuck in the mud after they rescue Stevie Wayne's kid and, like, they're trying to get out. I mean, it's old, like, it's old, like, tension setup that's in a, a ton of horror movies, but it really works. And I think it's because those first two-thirds of the movies, Carpenter Hill and their writing and in Carpenter's direction and how they put it together, you actually care about everyone that's in this movie at this point. You don't want to see anyone get murked by these ghosts that hasn't already been marked, you know. Even the people got I like a, Oh, I like all these people. Yeah. They're likable, which is another rare thing for horror movies in the 80s because at the certain point when you start getting to like slasher territory, you're getting disposable characters that you couldn't give a shit about, probably actively despise and want to see die. So, again, kind of bucking the trend. I mean, same thing in Halloween. There's not a single character that you want to see die in the movie maybe bob the guy with the glasses but outside of him no one's no one's looking for you ain't really looking for anyone to like bite the big one but you know there's a lot going on and like like i said like that mud sequence is really great of just trying to get away and just everyone trying to go different places and all this is now going down in what, you know, Carpenter refers to as Real 9, which is the last reel of the movie that they shot. And in fact, his music cue for this is just called Real 9, which is like an 11-minute piece of extended music. It goes up and down. It, like, hits all the notes. And I think this was the reel where they didn't want to re- recut because they, I think they felt like they had what they needed and everything was right. And I think they did a couple little things here and there to kind of punch it up, but, like, I think this was just like, this is where the movie is made. You know, this is where the slow burn pays off. And there's a lot of great stuff. And like, between the music and the cross-cutting and all this stuff, it it just works. And while you have, they rescue Stevie Wayne's kid, they're heading to the church with um, Malone and um, Janet Lee and Nancy Loomis's character. You got Stevie Wayne all by herself at this lighthouse as these, as the fog's rolling in, you got bunch of ghosts and there's another sequence and this is going to be her third Hitchcock nod 
of the fog. And this is something Carpenter said on the commentary. He called it his North by Northwest sequence. It's essentially Adrian Barbeau climbing to the top of the lighthouse trying to get away from these ghosts. They're getting close and like it it's really scary. And you also get a really, really, really great effect from Rob Bottin. I don't know if he did all the effects on the movie, but like he definitely did this one where you get the reveal of one of the ghosts and you see what they call worm face. Which again brings back Lovecraft and Fulci and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of a little bit of a Fulci-esque zombie before... I mean, Fulci had made zombie at that point, but like he hadn't really gotten to his supernatural like zombie movies, you know? But again, I think I think it's more of the Lovecraft influence that both Fulci and Carpenter have. Which is why like there's similarities in this. But it's a really great effect and like it's really the only time you get to see a one of the ghosts up close and see like it's a rotting corpse type thing. Now, speaking of Botine, he also plays Blake, which is the lead ghost. And his is different from all the other ghosts because he has red eyes. So he has this like this really cool effect, especially when like they break in the church and you just see like he's leading the other ghosts as they're getting in. Like speaking of that church sequence and I'm getting a little all over the place because this, all this is like cross cut with each other. Like, the siege part of the church when like those those ghosts are like punching through the stained glass and all that stuff that shit that shit really works totally and it's like you know you don't think of stained glass being like punched through but like it's really effective and it's just it's you know you don't think of a church being sieged because like in a lot of horror movies the church is the sacred ground but not here those ghosts just throw the fucking doors and like we're here bitch Kind of brings to mind uh, Monster Squad, the end, the end of Monster Squad. Yeah, that that's actually a really good comparison because they're trying to get to the church, but like you know, can't really get the consecrated ground. And plus, those ghosts aren't necessarily evil, which is another reason why the church isn't you know effective. But the thing is, is that they re- they realize that the big cross that's in the church is made of a bunch of the gold that they stole from Blake and his other leper friends. So Father Malone takes it off the wall and he walks up to Blake and he hands him the cross in what I think Carpenter Hill referred to as the atomic cross sequence. So you got Father Malone holding the cross. You have Blake grabbing the other end and you get smoke and this thing is just glowing. Like insane. Like there's plenty of gifts and like that kind of stuff from that movie. It's, it's a really cool effect. And like, you don't know where it's really going, but like at the same time that's happening, Adrian Barbeau, Stevie Wayne's getting like cornered. She's been stabbed by one of the ghosts, and like they're like everything's closing in. So then it's like Atkins, Nick Castle has to pull Malone off the cross. So Blake is just holding on to it. And then whoosh. The fog vanishes. The ghost vanishes. Everything goes back to normal, you know? And it's like, ah. The bad dream is over, kind of thing. But that's not the ending. Because it wouldn't be the ghost story without one last scare. So after everything's seemingly going back to normal, Stevie Wayne gets back on the radio and gives like a warning watch out for the fog type of thing. Sort of a throwback to the original thing, the watch the skies type of speech. I think that's what Carper's direct influence was on this. And then everyone's like kind of going about their way. Shit's normal, whatever. And then 
Blake returns. And he's got a sword. And to paraphrase Wu-Tang Clan, he's chopping heads. Although you don't actually see a decapitation, but like basically Blake comes back, kills Father Malone, and completing the six must die curse, and that's the end of the fog. And I don't know. What do you think about that ending? I, I think it's great, uh, you know, Father Malone being last, and he was the one that was uh, that that was explicitly like the descendant of one of one of the people that had killed it. You know, there was actual reason to like get him. Yeah. You know, whereas like I, I at least I, I unless I'm mistaken, they like the other folks that got killed weren't like relatives of, but but he was like notably like the you know grandchild or great grandchild or something, right? Yeah. So he was the most like explicitly tied to what happened to Blake and his crew. And, you know, apparently there was a different ending. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was like a bigger horror moment or like everyone lived or like things are normal, but whatever that original ending was, I think they made the right choice in how they ended it. Like it's, it's the perfect capper to it. So it's, you know, I think this is just a solid movie. And again, 20 years ago, or maybe even 25 when I first saw it or whatever, wasn't on that wavelength. Now it's, I again, I will safely say this is my favorite Carpenter movie. It could change in another 10 years, but like I think regardless, it's always going to rank pretty high up there for me. Before we wrap up talking about The Fog, I got a couple quick hits here to throw in that couldn't really work in as we're talking about the movie and kind of break it down scene by scene, but I feel like they sh- this stuff should be noted because I do think it's important to like the history and legacy of the fog. We touched upon it a little bit, but the fog was a modest success at the time. It obviously didn't do Halloween numbers, but it it was respectable. Apco Embassy ended up pairing it up for drive-ins with another one of its horror hits, Phantasm, which I think also helped get it out there because Phantasm was a huge movie. For Avco Embassy, and I think when I did a Q and A with um, Don Coscarelli a few years back for Phantasm, he basically said like this: Phantasm was the movie that like saved Avco and kind of changed their philosophy, what they're doing, and kind of pivoted them to do more genre fare. So it's no surprise that they would pair Phantasm and The Fog together, you know. And I'm saying this movie was a modest success. It was definitely successful enough that. The 1972 film Tower of Evil was re-released in the 80s as Beyond the Fog, as an obvious cash-in. And I don't know if you've ever seen Tower of Evil. It's, it's pretty cool. It's a, another 70s seaside horror slow burner. Okay. It, it's pretty cool. It's, you know, there's some foggy elements to it, but, like, I don't, it's not anywhere near, like, a, you know, influence on this film. For sure. But it's definitely cool and worth checking out. I've, I've talked about it a few times doing like a seaside horror type screening and doing like The Fog and this and maybe Dead and Buried or something like that. I mean, theaters reopening soon. I don't know how how open, open things are going to be if I can do double and triple features quite yet. But, you know, it's an idea to throw out there. Fog, Tower Evil, Dead and Buried. I'd like to see that. Yeah, sounds good. If you would like to see it, hit us up on the old social medias and let us know if you like that idea for a triple or not. Also, this was the last film Carpenter recorded as a solo artist. I guess that's a weird term for like someone that's scoring a film. 
Because after he did this score for The Fog, he began his musical collaboration with Alan Howarth, starting with Escape from New York. I think he always listed it in association with Alan Howarth, which I don't know if that was a sore spot or something. I don't know what their relationship is now or whatever, but whatever. They made some great music together. And basically, he ended up working with Howarth mostly all the way through, I think, Prince of Darkness was the last film they did together. And, you know, from what I've read and from what I've seen, apparently there was a completely different score. I don't know how vastly different it was to what ended up in the film, but, like, I think they had a different kind of score in in the original cut. And, like, once watching that rough cut, Carpenter's like, this shit ain't gonna work. I gotta come up with some new cues and new things. And, like, again, I... It's a different score for him because you you know Halloween has like dare I say the hit song. Mm-hmm. This is like in in musical sense. If you're thinking of an album, like there's hits and some of those cues are straight up hits. And the fog definitely has a main theme that's a absolute banger. But like I kind of relate it to like maybe Prince of Darkness, where like the the soundtrack is really good, but it's not really like when you think in terms of like songs as hits it doesn't operate the same way it's more of a soundscape yeah it's uh and it's a it's a little less like maybe one note though than a lot of those others like a, a lot of you know a lot of like the halloween is just kind of plays on itself yeah whereas this one at least didn't seem that way to me yeah it's it's kind of the score kind of evolves as the film evolves and like again like he put together that that real nine which is the extended cue of like non-stop stuff which is like it's fucking phenomenal. So I don't know if this is my favorite Carpenter score, but like I like it a lot. I, I think I still lean on Halloween three, and I know there's some debate of how much he did versus Howarth and all that. But like you know, I, I but I do put the fog highly up there. It's a lot different than like the very electronic heavy like synth stuff that he basically wrapped around this mm-hmm. kind of. It's still synthy, but there's definitely like a piano clean through line to it. It's it's more classical, I guess. Not classical in like, you know, the Beethoven sense, but like more of a throwback to like I think the films that inspired him to make it. I guess my biggest takeaway from the fog and rewatching, revisiting and talking about on this podcast, it, it just really showed John Carpenter along with Deborah Hill and the rest of the crew really growing in their craft. You know, a lot of filmmakers who make a successful film, a lot of times, botch the follow-up. That's happened a lot of times. Like, you know, Toby Hooper made Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and then he followed it up with Eaten Alive, but he got fired off of Eaten Alive, and then, like, kind of went back and forth. So it's like, when you come off a film as big as Halloween was, like, I think it was considered the biggest, most successful independent film for a long time. You know, it's... There's egos involved. Like, you know, filmmaking is an ego thing. Because you, you think about it, because that's how, you know, when people talk about going to film school, like, they, like, you know, is it, I don't know how to really explain it, but, like, but the thing about what they did with The Fog was they were very conscious about doing something different and making something that was, you know, probably really out of step with the time period. And then realizing and having the insight to see like this isn't quite working we need to like we need to do certain things to make this work and i think a lot of filmmakers egos would got in the way it's like i can do no wrong i'm a fucking master 
I'm nailing this, whatever. Whatever if this is not working quite the same. I'm such and such filmmaker. People are going to like it anyway. And they didn't rest on that laurel. Like They knew people really liked Halloween, but they didn't lean on that as a as an excuse to like turn in a movie they weren't happy with. Which I, I think is really commendable, and I wish other filmmakers... I mean, obviously, they had to go and ask for more money in order to reshoot, and like some instances, you're not going to get that. But I think Avco believed in them enough to allow that to happen. And I think the film's much better for it. Like, would the fog work as an 80-minute ghost story with, like, not really big scares and, like, that little bit of extra gore? It could, but I think knowing what you need to do to, like, improve and make better is just as important as being, like, you know, hitting a home run your first time at bat. I, I've read stories about Carpenter on The Thing where, like, they ran some problems and there was a scene not working, so he sat down, wrote a new scene, knew he needed a new piece of music that wasn't written yet, so he wrote a piece of score for that scene and just did everything so it all worked together. And that that's a resourcefulness and, like, just a keen observation of your craft. And, I, I mean, that's my biggest takeaway from The Fog. It's like, you know realizing you're not going to be perfect every time and being willing to like make it better. Another thing I wanted to mention is the novelization. It was penned by Dennis Etchison, who, and in this book, and this goes back to something you mentioned earlier about Father Malone being the only direct person tied to the Blake and the Elizabeth Dane being sunk. In the novel, or the novelization, I should say, Ghosts are only killing people that are direct descendants of those involved. So the six they are looking for are for relatives of the six that caused the ship to sink. It's not really implied in the actual like script. It might have been in the other version. They just like kind of cut it out because usually novelizations are working off like earlier drafts or shooting scripts, and if there's changes, those aren't going to be in there because there's not enough time. And Etchison actually had also penned other novelizations for Carpenter Properties, but he did it under a pseudonym, Jack Martin. I'm not sure why he picked to use his real name for The Fog as opposed to Jack Martin like he did for Halloween 2 and 3. He also wrote the the novelization of David Cronenberg's Videodrome as well. And funny enough, his novelizations were really successful. And I think we mentioned this on the Halloween episode, but like after his Halloween 3 novelization sold really well and essentially did better than the movie did at the time. Carpenter and Hill had asked them to write a screenplay for Halloween 4 that got scrapped once they sold their rights off and they decided to just go full Mikey Myers from here on out. I think that script's online and I've heard mixed reviews of it, but like, you know, I I just kind of find it interesting, like even during this period, they had the same person writing their novelizations. Just kind of cool, you know. Willingness to work like same DP, same guy writing the novelizations, kind of cool. I guess our final thoughts on this is, you know, I've already stated it, so I'm just like reiterating a final thought. I guess, you know, out of all Carpenter's films, I just feel The Fog is the one that's aged into itself the most, and it, it's it's grown, it's gotten better, and I think you know, it's just like how the movie's set up. It's a slow burn. It just really needed the time to appreciate it. 
You got any closing thoughts before we move off the fog, Nick? It's better than Halloween. Ooh. What a way to end it. We're going to take one last commercial break, but we're going to return. I'm not going to hold Nick accountable to that comment, but we're going to talk <laughs> about, we're going to do read, watch, and listen after this. So stay tuned. <laughs> the Fog and Phantasm, two terrific hits together to grab you. Phantasm. If it doesn't kill you this time, you've been dead too long. And from the creator of Halloween, John Carpenter's The Fog. Lock your windows, bolt your doors. There's something in the fog. The Fog and Phantasm. No one can escape from now. Rated R. Welcome back. It's now time for... On the Cinematic Void Podcast, as we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to since the last time we recorded a podcast. Up first is Nick, who... Are you sure you want to keep with your Halloween is not as good as the fog statement? Yeah, I, I don't know if I can actually defend uh, defend that opinion, but... Um... But I guess I'm just trying to say here that I really, I just really liked it this time around, and I was, I was uh, really surprised at how much I actually liked it. Um, so much so that the next time I go to watch a John Carpenter movie, I may reach for, the, I will probably reach for this before I reach for Halloween. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. It's like you know, you can debate. It's it's an opinion, really, and I know it's universal opinion that Halloween's a great classic, and I agree with that. But. I, I, I know I'm just, like, busting your balls or whatever for saying that, but, like, you know, I said The Fog is my favorite Carpenter movie. Do I think it's the best movie he made? You know, not necessarily, but, like, you know, is enjoyment and rewatchability. I'm going to The Fog above Halloween myself. There you go. So, anyway, Nick, what have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? I recently started reading uh, uh, Roberto Bolaño's uh, 2666. Uh, but I'm not too far into it. So, but uh, that's what I'm reading right now. Uh, what my, my audio book, the one that I was, t- <laughs> the one that I was talked about in the last, uh, last read, watch, listen, my audio book that I got from audible as like, you know, they, they have like free ones that you can get every month that you don't actually have to pay for or whatever, like not your credits, just like, Oh, free audible only book. I'm like stoked on this audible only book. Well, Fucking halfway through the month, boom, they took it down. What? So I'm, I'm halfway through this book and they took it down. So I'm kind of upset about that. So I'm going to talk shit on Audible right here. Yo, Audible, what the fuck, man? You can't. What the fuck, man? What? I'm you... halfway through this goddamn book. Like, I guess, I, I don't know. Or, fucked up. Did they have a time limit on those free books? I don't know. I don't think there's like a, you don't download, you know, there isn't like a download option, I don't think. Like, you download the whole book. I mean, maybe, I guess. But uh, but either way, like yeah, I I don't know. I fucking I added it to my library. Let me have it. Yeah, man. Period. <laughs> Fuck, man. It's not even like it's a rental where like you know the rules engagement is that once you start, you have twenty four hours to finish. No one's finishing a fucking book in twenty four hours. And it had only been like you know I only had it in my library for like maybe two weeks tops. That's bullshit. I mean, I, I guess that means Audible will not be your sponsor. Yeah. It was cool too. It was a cool book. But uh, anyway, so so you know, I'm bummed on books right now. So moving on. I recently had just started just 
kind of thrown on my uh, iTunes. I've been listening to a bunch of Numero Group uh, like soul compilations. Like they, Numero Group just does like tons of compilations of just crazy stuff of all genres. But I was like just digging through all the soul stuff they have. There's like a 900 song fucking playlist. I mean, it's like massive, right? And so I've just been stoked on Numero Group lately. And I was thinking about the other stuff that they've they've uh, reissued, like just crazy Husker Du stuff, uh, Unwound, um, Codeine. And I was thinking, and all the uh, the band Karate from Boston. Oh, shit. Um, their, their stuff has been out of print for years. And uh, and I, w- I was just thinking when I was like listening to this other stuff, like, man, how cool would that be? Like Numero Group would be the perfect label to start start reissuing karate stuff. And uh, and then like a week later, I see it pop up on Instagram. Like, boom, they, they're reissuing the uh, first record. They just put it up on all the streaming platforms and stuff. So I've been listening to the uh, self-titled karate record, which is like, great indie rock band from the 90s just like weird angular guitar like almost like jazz guitar they're kind of a i don't know it's like it's a jazz band but it's not it's an emo band but it's not it's just weird angular indie rock but it's not i don't know it's a very unique band sugar that's all i can remember off the top. <laughs> i mean i i still throw on those karate records every once in a while like i haven't recently but like i remember you sent it to me and like we we're talking about it i was like yeah i still got all all mine you're like those records are worth money i'm like i'm at mp3s but you know <laughs> but they're you know they haven't been uh, anywhere to listen to so they're they're worth a lot either way as far as movies go, uh, I haven't been watching a lot. I did watch uh, Fetus as part of the Cinemadness movie the other night. Um, and man, fucking awesome. <laughs> I, I loved Fetus. I, I bought it the next day. I thought about it all night. I bought it the next day. Can't wait to, ha- can't wait to own it. So thanks for showing it. Yeah, shout out to Lewis and Masker video for that because he suggested like, you should do a shot on video night so we kind of talk back and forth and like i think a lot of people thought we were going to do the chester and turner like shot on video double feature of um black devil doll from hell and um tales from the quad dead zone but it's like i i think fetus and i said in the q a when i was talking to brian pollen the director it's like it was going to be an eye-opening experience and i i'm not saying everyone loved fetus or liked fetus but like yeah i i I, I said this a while ago. It's like sometimes I like to show stuff that makes you smash your moral compass of what you're willing to actually watch and sit through. And I, I think between the movie and the Q and A, like it, you know, I, I I think people got a new respect for Brian. And like I know people were trying to like you know talk and crack jokes about it, but like it's the kind of movie where like it you're not gonna get above it. It's in my wheelhouse. It's in your wheelhouse. That's exactly. I smashed smashed my moral compass to bits. (laughs) Please. please. Um, And I I also just watched uh, Bad Trip uh, starring Eric Andre, who I'm like, you know, I got to be that guy, I guess. But like, I just, yeah, whatever. Like, I never really watch a show or whatever. Like, oh, that's not for me. Like, in other words, like, I'm not saying it's not for me, but I'm just like, not a fan. Like, I just don't follow it. Like I've seen it. I like it. It's fine. That's what I'm trying to say. But I fucking love this movie. It's fucking absolutely insane. Have you seen, have you seen Bad Trip? I have not seen it yet. I know. Dude. I was going to say. It's great, man. Fucking highly recommend it. Like the most fun I've had in a while. 
it's funny because one of the last things we were supposed to do before the pandemic hit and shut down the theater was we were supposed to do the premiere. Oh, really? And it's insane. You know, it's like, I'm sure you've heard about it, but you know, it's kind of, he's doing those things like in public and it kind of happens to other people, like innocent other people that aren't in on it, you know? And, uh, but then, but like the kind of the catch is like, they're all just kind of trying to help him. Like they don't know who he, you know, there's just like crazy shit happening. And like, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of fun because it just kind of shows like some humanity to it too. He's not like, it's not like it's just him clowning on people. There, there's like a whole another dimension to it. You know, it's, it's cool. I liked it a lot. So it's like pulling pranks, but having empathy. Yeah. As for me, reading wise, the, haven't been doing too much reading. Uh, the most I've done is like, I got the latest issue of a uh, deep red number two of the relaunch and they also or i also got a reissue of the original deep red number one since they're i think they're doing a repress of old episodes or old issues i should say so kind of flipping through those haven't really sat down to read read but i mean there's words i looked at it i guess that counts as reading watch wise the only thing i've put on recently is a late era giallo called red rings of fear on scorpion releasing it stars fabio testi it was originally supposed to be directed by massimo dalamar who did what have you done to solange as well as what have you done to our daughters and it was supposed to be the ending of his schoolgirls in peril trilogy but he died in a car accident before the movie's made he's funny enough there's like eight writers credited on the script it's, it's pretty good. I, I think we might actually, when it comes to January Giallo next year, I think we might talk about Massimo on those movies. So just something. I, I, I'd never seen it up in this point. It's always been on my watch list, so I just picked it up and watched it. Listen, uh, music-wise, I've kind of gone back to like late high school, early college, and thrown on Weston, got beat up in matinee. I... I randomly got this song, My Favorite Mistake by Weston, stuck in my head. And it's like, I used to have it on. It was a split seven inch with another band that I had the song on. It was like two Pennsylvania bands. I can't remember for the life of me who the other band was. But that song just randomly popped in my head. And it's like, well, you know, I should, you know, I should listen to this. And I just went on this Weston kick of like at least those two albums. Like uh, Plow United. It might have been... Actually, I think you're right. I think it was Plow United. It was one of those kind of like Pennsylvania pop-punk bands. And, I don't know, it's been a nice nostalgia change of pace. I've also listened to that new Freddie Gibbs single, um, Big Boss Rabbit. Ooh. That that That's a fucking banger right there. Getting excited for that new Gibbs record whenever that's coming. Totally. And there was a new Conway the Machine single that came out. I guess he's got another album that's coming out even before his Shady Records debut. Huh. Um, let I don't me, think I heard that new single. Cool. Yeah, it's like I randomly saw, like, he posted, like, new single out on Instagram. And I was like, okay. And it's like it's a whole album. The song is called Blood Roses, and the album's called La Maquana, which I think is coming out on Friday. So, the track's really good. It's just like this is this is the second album he's released that isn't related to the album he's been talking about releasing. <laughs> oh shit, yeah. <laughs> and I guess uh, as I also listened to some 
West Side Gun dropped some new singles as well because he's mm-hmm. got he's got that um Hitler Wears Hermes mixtape number eight is coming out. So I hit a couple singles. Little shorties, not bad. One last thing I have been listening to is a uh, this podcast. What had happened was it's by Open Mike Eagle, and basically each season he talks to a different hip hop producer and you know kind of goes over their career so it's like long form interviews over several episodes this season he's talking to LP who's you know most people know for run the jewels but like i became familiar with them because of company flow and the first two episodes are just strictly about company flow so i guess he'll probably get into like def jocks and stuff like that the previous season which i actually went back after I finished those lp episodes list to he did he did it with prince paul prince paul produced for de la soul grave diggers and he also put out one of the best high concept rap albums ever prince among thieves which is how that was never made into a movie is still insane and he actually talks about like how he tried to get it made as a movie as well so yeah that's basically what i've been listening to that wraps up this episode of the Cinematic Void Podcast. Did you enjoy this long-form episode where we talked about The Fog? Do you want us to do that with other movies? Hit us up on social media. Let us know. Because, you know, this is kind of fun. Nice change of pace. We're obviously going to stick to doing, like, multiple movies and do kind of, like, quick, quick hits for the most part. But, like, if you like this episode, we'll throw in a few more of these throughout the year as well. Coming up on the Cinematic movie on... April 23rd, we have a co-presentation with Severn Films that's going to go live at 8.30 p.m. Pacific time over at www.cinematicvoid.com midnight. And then on May 14th, we have an episode presented by Culture Shock Releasing that I'm really excited for everyone to check out. Coming up on the Cinematic Void podcast, we got some guests lined up, we got some crazy topics, and, you know, plenty of cinemadness. Plenty of cinemadness go around. Until next time... See you in the void. Mom, can I have a stomach pounder and a Coke? After lunch. Okay.